Welcome to West Left, weekly political discussion challenge in the mainstream left. Uh, I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, uh, writer and teacher Jessica, and our co-host Kenny Sepeda. Uh, we are online at what-s-left.webnot.com. Uh, you can find us on the episode link, uh, and we ask folks to please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thanks. Um, Today we're doing part two with Alison McDowell, mother, independent researcher based in Philadelphia, uh, who blogs at uh, Wrench in the Gears. Uh, we will link to it in the episode notes. Uh, Alison is joining us for part two of the conversation on the predatory conditional cash transfers and cybernetic futures that are supposed to help financially underwriters communities. We had a long discussion last week and we hope to continue that discussion this week. Uh, so uh, Alison, take it from here. All right, great. Well, thanks for for having me back. I know I'm always I always have a lot to share. Um, so today we're going to sort of revisit this idea of the conditional cash transfer, which I think is going to be linked to the idea of the universal basic income and um, like programmable money. And it's and the pilot for this was in Mexico in the mid 1990s, but the people who were implementing it were connected to the central banking systems and sort of U.S. Ivy League elite uh, universities. And so I believe that Mexico was really the test bed for the idea of programmable conditional money, money you get, but that low income people can have access to, but only if they do jump through all the hoops and do everything that's required. And so the section that we're going to talk about today, I'm, I want to touch a little bit at the beginning about um, this idea of uh, uh, cybernetics and sort of social engineering, because a lot of this comes out of the uh, early 20th century social engineering, pro progressive, like progressive, but social efficiency movement, scientific management of humanity. Um, and I think that somewhat relates to some of the stuff that's going on lately with the takeover of Twitter, that the idea of authenticating uh, one's digital presence through these cybernetic networks is related to, to, to mirroring society. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the beginning and then move on to talk about the eugenics element, because this, again, the social engineering is largely you know, white Western interests engineering the rest of the population to some standard that they find is, you know, what, what they desire, right? And then ultimately what they desire is to engineer natural life into this um, synthetic, you know, human plus synthetic existence. And that's, that's the next generation of eugenics is that we are all engineered into this post-human world. Um, and so there's the eugenics. And then towards the end, I want to touch on how Think that what happened in Mexico relates to the universal basic income program in Oakland. So we want to start with the last time we talked a little bit about the Global Brain Project and uh, Irvin Laszlo and Julia Stolman, and that they were um, working on this Global Brain Project as part of this foundation for integrated education. And in 1973, I believe it was, they wrote, they edited a book, Julia Stolman and uh, Irvin Laszlo, who was a systems theorist uh, called Emergent Man. And so a lot of, there's sort of a millenarian Malthusian element to all of this, because if you understand it as cybernetics, that there is sort of a conditional, conditions placed on society because of scarcity. Now, I think most of us know that a lot of this scarcity is manufactured. We may have 
sort of differences of opinion to the extent to which the world's carrying capacity is or is not scarce. But the presumption starting in the 70s was that essentially the world was going to be over in the next years, a couple of years, if we don't make dramatic social changes. And so this was 50 years out, the dramatic social changes were advanced. And the idea was that like, ultimately, their goal was an outer space civilization, you know, and now we're 50 years later, and we have the new version of, you know, the cybernetic conditions of the, the, corporate climate narrative as, as the cybernetic control measure. Um, but uh, Abraham Maslow, who, who wrote like Maslow's needs, he was a psychologist that was associated with the human potential movement. And I would always presume that he was like a really kind old guy somehow, like that he cared about people's needs. It was like this hierarchy of needs of what you needed to get to be a fully actualized human being. And so he, his was the first chapter in this book, Emergent Man from 1973. And I was kind of shocked the degree to which um, the eugenics element was like straight up laid out in, in his chapter. Um, and so I, I included this last time we talked a little bit about the special choosers for society. And like within the cybernetic system, there is some ideal to be attained, right? And the people who are generally setting the terms of the destination of the circuit um, are the people with the money and resources. And largely, again, that is the you know, white Western crown interest, Atlantis's interest. So I'm just going to read this out because I, I find it myself so a little shocking. And I know some of you guys just have folks who are listening in on the podcast and don't have access to the slides. Um, so this is from Maslow's chapter one of Emergent Man. Um, and this paragraph is called The Good Specimen as the Chooser for the Whole Species. It has been my experience through a long line of, of exploratory investigations going back to the 30s that the healthiest people, parentheses, or the most creative, or the strongest, or the wisest, or the saintliest, close parentheses, can be used as biological assays, or perhaps I should say as advanced scouts or more sensitive perceivers to tell us less sensitive ones what it is that we value. Okay. What I mean is something like this. It is easy enough to select out, for instance, persons who are aesthetically sensitive to color and form, and then learn to submit ourselves or to defer to their judgment about colors, forms, fabrics, furniture, and the like. My experience is that if I get out of the way and do not intrude upon the superior perceivers, then I can confidently predict that what they like immediately I will slowly get to like in perhaps a month or two. It is as if uh, they were I only more sensitized or as if they were I with less doubt, confusion and, and uncertainty. So I, I wanted to use this as the framing because the idea of the conditional cash transfer is that there is some optimal existence that is associated with proper behavior to access these payments um, that are often people are in need of them because of structural poverty, <laughs> um, but that they, you're engineering, especially women, pregnant women and children, and then their extended families into this optimization. But it's not necessarily something that they would willingly choose to pursue, but that that is their requirement. So I don't know if any of you guys have a response based on what we talked about at all last time, but for me, I, I wanted to make sure I started off with that. I think this is pretty disgusting. Um, that term that he used, uh, I, that, that's a term in science, biological assay. 
that basically means it's it's a, it's a it's a general term for a test in which you're trying to see what can be gleaned about an organism. So we use that. That's how we use that's the term. So he's using that term to talk about humanity um, as an experimental field upon which to that can reveal itself as to what what's good and what's bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I don't know. There's not much more I can say other than it's straight up like, but I mean, and he's, and I, I know he knows he's, he thinks he's one of the choosers. Yeah. Right. I, I feel like this would be in like the, you know, Hitler's book, <laughs> Mein Kampf, you know? Um, right. Yeah. You'll get used to it. Right. And that's a part of it. Like this whole behavioral economics, right. The choosiest chooser chose. So, you know, even if you don't like it, give it a few months and maybe you'll become dull to it or like we can medicate you into accepting it. So, okay, yeah. we can move on. <laughs> but just that last part, that feigned humility of my experience is if I get out of the way, but he's talking, he's not getting out of the way of anything. He's, other people, he's telling other people, get out of the way, we'll decide for you. So it's just gross. And eventually you'll get used to it. Yeah. This also reminds me of that. I think there was a picture in the article, right? Of that um, Danish uh, politician, or was it you that posted that? It was like a tweet from the World Economic Forum where the this politician says, you know, I don't own anything. I don't have privacy, but I'm the happiest I've ever been type of situation. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's circulated a lot. That's definitely circulated a lot. So, so this is just reinforcing. This is also from the same book. This is um, chapter 10. And I think I mentioned it last time about the Unibuts, uh, this idea of the interplanetary kibbutz. So, you know, what they're trying to do is to create an engineered society, but it's artificial. It's not a society that is um, necessarily situated and organically emergent from land and cultural and resources, they're, they're trying to sort of dissociate people from all of that and then put them in these artificial constructs. Um, and so the Unibuts, Robert Smith, he was a, um, he worked for NASA, it says, yeah, employed at Nassville, Na NASA um, adjunct professor at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. And so NASA in Huntsville, that's where all the Operation Paperclip Nazis went. <laughs> so that's interesting to know. Um, but again, this I believe that we're talking about eugenics within this internet of bodies and internet of nano things is the idea that we are building off of this 1970s conception that the planet will be destroyed and that we will become some sort of interplanetary civilization. But the reality is, is that people's physical bodies, like there's no way at scale to move people that way. And, and I'm not even saying that they can accomplish this, but the thought experiment I think they're trying to do is to create sort of digital representations of people and mind files. And so the new eugenics program is moving towards limiting material bodies and then emphasizing um, data extraction to create these mind files. So when you understand the conditional cash transfer and the data analytics that we touched on towards the end of the talk yesterday or last week, um, the idea of telehealth, Edu educational technology, wearable technology, it's the mirroring and creation of the digital twins for something like a planned interplanetary kibbutz. So we can go to the next one. And this is from the same chapter with Robert Smith, but I just wanted to touch 
John, you know, they, they were informed by Buckminster Fuller and his idea of this world game and creating like a world grid to work out this kibbutz system. And so I'm going to share the, the slides and there's a, a source link to the actual article. But when they were talking about how to make this happen and who might be the stakeholders in this new idea, you can see number one is that World Institute with Julius Stolman. So he's the co-editor of this book, but he's, you know, integral with Fritz Kunst in the uh, Foundation for Integrated Education. Education and Oliver Reiser's World Brain Project, but you've got you there. You've got Tavistock is number in number three, um, and then down in number eleven, you've got the Institute for the Future and Rand, both of which are Bay Area institutions. So while on the one hand this may seem like far away and crazy and distant. These are people who are operating in spaces where RAND and Institute for the Future and Tavistock are sort of their go-to people. And they've, they've talked about how the United Nations would serve as the, the coordinator in the hierarchy of task effort, as the common nucleus for the network of national and individual groups involved in the task. So they're, they're you know, whether or not they had official sign-ons for this, but in their mind, these are the people who are gonna help them accomplish this interplanetary goal in 1973. So we're 50 years out and Institute for the Future and RAND are issuing white papers like nobody's business about inter, you know, the internet of bodies and digital twins. Um, and again, this interplanetary concept is something that's been ad advanced a lot by Elon Musk um, and the, the goal, you know, I will mention, and I'm going to talk about this more with Jason on the weekend. I'm going to have an episode about this. Um, I think really in many ways, Musk is sort of a spectacle for, for this, that he's meant to be a distraction. He is no more Twitter than Mark Zuckerberg is actually Facebook. It really is this global network cybernetic system um, of the deep state of, you know, this, this global apparatus that becomes personified in, in the individuals of that they choose to front for them. But I will say that Elon Musk's uh, grandfather was a, um, a leader in the technocracy movement in Canada. And uh, at, at some point he came under fire, like he was arrested or under in, in court over sharing political material. And in 1950, he relocated his whole family to South Africa. So this, so apartheid was implemented in 1948 and they were essentially, the, they were advertising this as a great place for, you know, white people to go, right? Hey, we got it all under control here. Come to South Africa. It's great. And then two years later, Musk's grandfather relocates everyone to South Africa. So I do think that within the larger eugenics context that we're talking about, that some of these, even though Musk is up front, there are, there are contours of his life story that that resonate with what we're trying to talk about today. And you'll hear a lot moving forward about something called the Kardashev, post-Kardashev civilization. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of this before. The block people are, chain people are talking about it a lot. And um, I guess it was said it was de developed as a concept by a Soviet astrophysicist in 1964. And it was about like energy regulation and that like the levels of planetary civilizational sophistication had to do with their capacity of leveraging the energy on the planet. And so these blockchain people and these sort of crypto techno utopians imagine that everything is going to be harnessed into the cybernetic system, including like digital currencies, programmable money, labor markets, nature, 
you know, piezoelectric energy to create what they call a, a Kardashev plus society that will ultimately be able to harness all of the energy of the earth and like become this interplanetary system. But again, in my, you know, my, my perspective now is that when you look at interplanetary colonization, like it's a colonizing project. Like why ever would we imagine that we should go colonize other places when we really are not being responsible with the stuff we already have? Like we, we really need to like get our act together before anybody starts talking about interplanetary colonization, but it is part of this manifest destiny program. So we can keep going. Okay, yeah, so this is Haldeman, uh, just a quick thing. So this is his grandfather, and again, leader of technocracy. He was the pilot, he was like an adventure pilot too, which is interesting within the context of aviation and geoengineering and so on and so forth. But we can, you know, Martian technocracy, you know, that's what <laughs> Elon is talking, Martian technocracy. So again, remaking women, at, like the next generation for this a future, for an interplanetary future. And I do think that the health measures and the education measures are meant to trigger that and to create, to help develop the digital twinning on blockchain. And so this is from Melanie Swan. She's written a number of papers, but again, just so this doesn't sound crazy, that they really are talking about using blockchain to create mind files, that your mind would be a decentralized autonomous corporation. And I think it's important for people you know, especially on the left to have this in mind that these cybernetic societies, literally they want to make you your own corporation. Although that it will be like a subunit of a master corporation, which is like the corporation of the earth that is running all of the subsidiaries, which would be you and your brain. Um, and so they're, they're trying to develop that through a digital representation. And I've talked about that a lot about the digital twinning. Um, and they're already talking about services on blockchain like LifeNot and Cybe Rev and, and smart contracts. Um, I'll just read a quote from this, this section. Again, this is from Melanie Swan. Digital mind files could be just like any other smart contract running on the blockchain with checks and balances and code-based validation features that apply to all smart contracts. So when I keep talking about like your digital twins operating in internet of things environments, and that every transaction that you make either with a person or a payment system or a smart piece of furniture or a smart piece of urban infrastructure, that that is all going into sort of your permanent record and ledger of who you are and what you represent. Um, and then ultimately, they talk about having advocates that could um, uh, like manage your profile, right? Like the next version of politics they're talking about is that it's radical democracy, only you're not um, voting on things, your digital twin knows you and knows how to vote for you. So I, I do believe that the conditional cash transfers are part of the larger blockchain system moving in this direction. Okay. I just, one thing I wanna maybe add on this part is one of the successful ways um, that uh, some of the private automobile companies got to get over on workers was to get them involved in the profit sharing. Basically, mm -hmm. um, you as if you as a collection of workers, if you as a, even individual workers can figure out how to get yourself part of the company so that you can figure out how fast you need to work yourself or how much you need to exploit yourself so we can make that extra profit and some will come back your way. It basically got, got the hamster to feel like it's going to gain something if it runs faster on the wheel. 
Um, yeah. And what I see in this in this um, digital mind file is I feel like they're almost broke down profit sharing and whatever 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 wealth you might imagine you might get from the data that you produce to be to be essentially a um, to individually profit share into that process. Um, mm-hmm. That's what it looks like to me. It looks like there's the, the, that same kind of sale job, or at least it has an, a, a whiff of that. Um, and the other thing is, I saw this on Russell Brand like just the, two days ago. Is he read an article about a company that is I can't remember the name of the company that's already saying if you agree to give us all your data, we we will we we think we are in the place to have to to educate your avatar to go to, so you can live forever. Like they basically are already saying they can do it. I don't think they're even there, but there that's, that's the program you can like, like if you're in this program, plus if you're willing to pay a little bit more in, you're just going to basically give us the right to collect almost like all your data. And then we're, we can, we can, we can give you, we can tell you that in the future, you're not going to die because we'll have this digital avatar of you that will be more like you, the more data you give us. And that's a total black mirror episode. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, there really is what about that? This, Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, like, and this is, again, when I'm talking about capitalism, like going digital, I, I, I didn't read this section before, but it says digital U files, U-Y-O-U, could earn economic sustenance with online projects, conduct administrative activities, find information, and have experiences to resync with U prime later. Thinking the experiences and knowledge from multiple copies of you will require specific processing algorithms for which blockchain concepts and architectures may be well suited, such as hashing security and versioning control. And so again, this is like, it's not just that they're creating a digital world to create new levels of profit. Like they are imagining like fractal, like infinite versions of you to extract profit from, it's not enough to like virtualize one of you that they were already imagining virtualizing like 10 of you and and like and how fast and how intense does that go right how I mean it's a bit mind-boggling clearly like again I don't know that they have it all in hand that they can accomplish the things they're talking about but theoretically you can see where they want to take it if they're able to so I mean like we all end up being multiple personality schizophrenics just so like for capitalism right digital capitalism all on blockchain because it's liberation right (laughs) for me at least it's just not just all these things right why would you want to live forever you know why do you want to be better you know like not accepting you prime is just you know you're not good enough (laughs) you know you can exacerbate so many other things that are already wrong with you know in our, our minds you know, you know our heads but but i guess you can you will be able to buy up you know some sort of uh, package to fix that too i i have a question um, it's more about our digital selves living as ghosts i guess in the metaverse is it is that the intention for our digital selves to continue living and as these digital goal ghosts, I'm not. Is that it? I just, what, what do you suspect? Or well, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, Eduardo. It's just a question. I'm not sure if, if I'm no. I mean, it's a good question because I think there's this idea that somehow they could like animate you, 
I think. I mean, I, that's how they're imagining it. This is something that I'm trying to sort of puzzle out is that they actually have things called evolutionary algorithms that they apply to different like systems and objects in digital spheres and evolve them. Like, and, I, and I'm not a math person, that's not my focus, but I've been trying to add, cause this is an important part of the conversation is this evolutionary process within algorithms and digital items. So could they capture your digital twin and continue to evolve you even after your material self is gone? And clearly there's not a soul in there, but there's an animated presence, I guess. And then could it, would it evolve? I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess I don't get how that would work. Like with the money thing, you know, cause they're, ex if they're exploiting, I like, I don't know. That's a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, mind fuck, but uh, <laughs> you know, like if you're, if you're no longer living, but you have this digital file from a like data mining perspective what like how does that work or how would that work well I think that's the idea of the corporation right like it's post-human like if you incorporate your yourself your brain as a com company like maybe the company just keeps going on after you're not there anymore I don't I don't know I mean, like the, the, the idea of these like de decentralized autonomous organizations, um, I believe his name is Larry Lohman. And I was made aware of his, he, he had a paper a couple years ago that I found out early in the pandemic. And it was, I think it, he's in the UK. And I think if you Google Larry Lohman and um, like cyborg forest, it will come up. But what he talked about was, that, you know, this idea that you would land would be set aside and it would be incorporated. I might maybe have talked about this. I can't remember if I've talked about it with you guys before, but with like smart contracts and a coded entity that it could, once it was set up as a corporation with no people, um, earn money through carbon credits and like carbon offsets and then hire drones and pruners to spray and maintain it eventually it could buy more land next door to it like it could have all of these conditionalities that are coded into these sort of decision tree hierarchies if these things happen then these things happen and you know if this happens then you log this amount of the forest or I mean I don't know like there are all of these things that are built in with sensor networks so literally they're turning living things into machines, like into corporate machines. I mean, and if they can imagine doing that to a forest, I'm sure they could imagine doing that to individual human beings or communities or something like that. But again, the, the trick is, is that they want to flip it to both the libertarians and the anarchists and frame it as somehow like this is a, a decentralized liberating technology. And, you know, on both sides, they're trying to have it both ways, right? That look, it's decentralized. So that must mean like, it's good for you. I'm like, no, no, putting like bunches of sensors and dropping them all over the forest and making it run itself like a company isn't liberation. That's not environmentalism. But that's why the, to me, the indigenous worldview, at least as traditionally conceptualized, like that framing is so important. And why, like, I actually was briefly in touch with a woman who's, who's in Mexico and her family farms. And so, 
like we were exchanging some information about, they were concerned about like privatization of water and new water meters and things that were going in. And the, the area that they're in is, is I guess being gentrified with rich people from the outside and how all of that happens. So again, that's why I feel like it's not just any particular left-leaning standpoint. Like that's why I keep feeling it's not necessarily like the Western Marxists who are going to have it right on this one, but is more the indigenous worldview like that's in right relationship that's going to be the right thing. But again, not that it's all homogenous or only of one viewpoint, but I don't know. And then so it's the plan basically to just completely cover the earth with like data farms just from the energy perspective and space too I would assume I mean if everybody's having 10 avatar I don't know I'm not techie enough to know sort of what that converts to but I do know that you know even just like crypto or blockchain like all of this requires actual material um you know data farming like uh, under the ocean or like what what's the scale is I mean I think that there's different I think there's different levels. Like, I mean, I think initially like ocean stuff is early, but I think that they're developing new forms of computation. I mean, I think that's what's so unnerving is that like through nanotechnology and photonics and optics that like literally we may be the computational devices. Like we may become the data farms. Like our bodies are living, you know, like material carbon-based life may end up being hosts for these things. And I don't understand how it, like I, you know, it's a bit far out and I don't have it, but like literally they're developing D- like artificial DNA data storage, like University of Washington, like that's, that's straight up like regular stuff now. So they're saying it's all artificial, but at what point, like, do those technologies say, well, why should we have like whole closets full of this? Like we could just like have it be in our body and just like resonate with, you know, like, I think that's part of this radio eugenics is that they want us to become literally like nodes in a living computing system. Like we are already living nodes in a computing system, but they want to like overlay their version on top. How green. <laughs> They'll call it sustainable for sure. BlackRock, they're, they're going to love it. I we just, I wanted to add something else, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, you know, you've mentioned Mexico several times, Addison, and you know, I was in Mexico for the, um, just some months ago. I was there for a long trip. I just, I wanted to stay there with my family. And I had visited other states and I had come upon so many um, uh, expats. I'd come up upon Europeans and US Americans, even Canadians moving to Mexico because it's a, it's a, it's a place where you don't have to be vaccinated. You don't have to, there's no force on vaccinations. You don't even have to travel to be back. I mean, Andy had his honeymoon there because you don't have to be required to, you're not required to get vaccinated. And I met some people that are, that, that uh, continued the festivals, even during the pandemia, when they, when the festivals were shutting down the large festivals in, in the Mexican Riviera, the, in the Yucatan and everything, and the hippie kind of groups that were out there. And, and there's a new wave of people coming in. There's some people that are also very, um, uh, that are aware of the Economic World Forum, and as well as they're uh, they're mixed with people who are into cryptocurrency because they want to decentralize. Yeah, yeah. And I Marco realized, Polko, right? Yeah, yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, in Acapulco, and so and so I and that's 
from where uh, in Morelos, where I stay with my great grandfather, I just take the highway down south, and in Guerrero. And so I, I just, I just found it interesting how people were talking about some of the same things we're talking about, but they're also de- they're talking in terms of decentralizing away, and they're with li- uh, um, sort of um, uh, libertarian views, but in moving into the cryptocurrency world which is different from what we're talking about here. So mm-hmm. I'm just noticing those differences amongst the community, so to speak, because some people amongst the community of anarchists and libertarians and people who want civil liberties, because there is, there's the camp that think that going digital and going decentralizing away from like the bank reserve and all of that, the USA is the way to go. And then there are people who are, you know, like maybe like me, that like more into permaculture and think that we just need to focus on the indigenous way of living. Right. And yeah, live in a very uh, uh, autonomous way. But there are these groups that are merging together. I've noticed. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. But they're all moving to Mexico. I just I found that pheno- that phenomenon interesting as I was there. Well, the thing is, ultimately, the crypto is part of this networked emerge. Like it's a, a networked super organism. I mean, they talk about it, even the Bitcoin, like they talk about it as if it's an organism, like a living thing. And so I feel like in many respects, you know, it is a colonizing force. I mean, not that that people in Mexico aren't also picking it up, but I mean, you look at what's happening in El Salvador and other places, like it's a colonial project, large, like this is being driven by people from the outside who are coming in, um, you know, introducing it. Now, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, it's technical, I think like Guadalajara is a center for a lot of technology companies that find like the, the Bay Area real estate too expensive, right? And so then they, they, they have their offices there. Um, I think what people are not understanding in the freedom, and I'll talk a little bit, I don't know if I have a slide about this for Twitter, is that in the emergent space, they need quote unquote free agents. And that's how the cybernetics works, is that you provide a certain amount of leeway and then you see how things move. You see how things are networked and then you 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 log that and then you reinforce it. And so the free markets aren't really free in all of this stuff. They are part of the network system. And so by participating in that way, they're reinforcing and strengthening this idea of a global world brain network that will ultimately, you know, is intended to run the world as a corporation. So, you know, it's an illusion to me that it's free markets because ultimately this is all being built up to serve the black rocks of the world (laughs) and their sensor networks that are attached to it. But the story that people feel like they need to live in for the moment is that somehow this is their safety net. And while I understand from a human standpoint that all of this is very overwhelming and that in... (laughs) that there aren't any easy solutions of taking apart this giant machine that's been in existence for centuries of like domination culture, that it would just be very nice to live in a manageable story to be like, well, if I have my stock of these crypto portfolios and I can get away and I can live, you know, go and live in a, you know, a nice tropical place that's, you know, affordable for me that, that I'm going to all be okay. From on a human standpoint, I get it, but it's the wrong story because that in my opinion, the right story is, that we actually have to grapple with this history and figure out collectively what we do 
at a, on a global basis, like neighbors, like the U.S. to Mexico, like we should not be just sending all of our people down there to take over your land. Like we we need to deal with that problem. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. I I found it interesting just uh, encountering people in San Miguel de Allende as well, small town there, and everyone's talking about crypto, and then there are other folks that are talking about but they're all kind of against this centralized system, right? They're just in different caps. Anyhow, that's something yeah. I... They don't know. I mean, like we need clarity about the story and I've always been pretty clear about my position about blockchain. So, um, yeah. Okay, you wanna go, you wanna listen to Melanie for a minute? This is a, has an audio thing. I don't know if you're able to... Share computer sound. She might already be blockchain. I don't know. <laughs> she looks uh, artificial, like an artificial intelligence robot, something or another. But she's real. I think so. I don't know. Right. She her name is on papers. Okay. Hi everyone. I'm Melanie Swan. I'm delighted to be with you today at Transvision. I'm honored to be accepting the Humanity Plus Essay Writing Competition Award for my entry, Transhuman Crypto Cloud Minds. I take seriously what I consider to be our collective mission to steward smooth migrations to transhuman futures. Multi-species societies comprised of human, machine, and algorithm. This involves both thriving and surviving, which blockchain as a future class smart network technology can underwrite. On one hand, blockchains for surviving enforce good player behavior with game through theoretic incentives and smart contracts and treaties. On the other hand, blockchains also allow the mind expansion we'd like to do as part of the transhuman program, eclipsing the confines of the current meat space mind. By joining a cloud mind, a cloud-based collaboration of human and machine minds we can participate in problem solving, exploration, adventure, innovation, artistic expression, and other personal development. Cloud minds are a safe way of permissioning partial mind resources into a joint resource. Hence, crypto cloud minds as a safe structure for realizing transhuman futures. Thank you. Right. So, so that was 2018. Oh, I think that was actually in Spain. I think that that was, a, there's a lot of, a lot of Spanish interest in this. <laughs> um, and you might think that it was just a joke, right? I mean, but it's not a joke. I mean, and you were talking about enforced player behavior and smart contracts. And so where this loops back to conditional cash transfers is the programmable money, like literally to them, it's a game. And part of the conditions of the game is that you get to share your meat space mind into the hive mind for some sort of collective problem solving, right? And so a lot of the, you know, the backstory behind, you know, the climate and the poverty is like, there's going to be in this imperative of like, if you're going to be a good citizen and you care, you should share your empty mind space with the collective, right? So we can all solve these problems. Only the the, the, the solutions, the problems are never going to be solution like solved by people who are operating within the confines of this paradigm that they've set up. Very disturbing. 
Yeah. I mean, I wonder how many people at Anarcho-Polco like know this, right? And it's like, again, you might think it's crazy, but the same woman, Melanie Swan, again, she, this is from last December, um, the Brain Decentralized Autonomous Corporation and the Quantum Brain. So all of this stuff with blockchain is now moving into quantum. And, you know, have the, the source link here, you know, cloud mind realization, NFT controlled blockchain hash structure for your personal connectome. That's like how your mind operates. Literally, their idea is that you're going to have neural nanobots in your mind, in the neurons in your brain that's going to like be programmed as part of these hive mind things. So I'm really hoping that that like they're still far off from that happening, although, you know. It sounds so outrageous that I even have to come online and talk about this, you know, and I sound crazy for talking about it, but I know this woman is connected to um, Purdue University, which runs the Sentient World Simulation and uh, Purdue Global Online, which is one of the largest online universities. And she has, um, yeah, you can see there, um, uh, she, she has an appointment at one of the universities in London. So this is not like just a flaky person who isn't connected. This is someone who is really at the heart of a lot of these systems. Um, she kind of okay. reminds me of, um, you know, Martine Rothblatt. Mm, yeah. Um, what is it? Like, tr uh, human plus, right? Yeah. And, um, Oh God, Rothblatt uses that word. It's trans, some, a trans, trans beaming. Is that it? Like this whole idea that we're all going to like become, I don't know, like mutants. Um, but it has like a, almost like an identity politics aspect to it. Um, which like this video uh, freaks me out. Well, for so many reasons, but like, <laughs> like all the buzzwords that she was using it's like all the buzzwords that you hear in education right now, like yeah. experiential learning and innovation and creativity and collaboration Games. and shared knowledge, like, like just boop, 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 like down the list. And it just, oh my God, it's so freaky. See, and I think this is the element, like the idea of bodily autonomy I mean, because this is the thing that they have broken over the past two years or attempted to run the battering ram that you could say no, right? No, thank you on the hive mind. Like when I went to the Mormon transhumanist conference and I talked to the head, the founders of the group, and I said, you know, I would prefer not to be part of your hive mind. You know, I, I, I need to have a choice to not do that. And yet we are building a world with weaponized atmosphere and sensor networks that don't really hold space for those of us who don't want to participate. Like, it's not a choice to st step aside from this. Yeah, and the, the thing that's interesting to me, too, is, like, if you looked at that video we just saw, for me, I could very much envision that, that speaking in, like, a secret society place where people are wearing, you know, cloaks, and they're all, like, they've got goat heads up on the wall and stuff like that, and yet... This is done completely, they talk about it actually completely openly, like we're going to go do this. And I imagine that this video, which is on YouTube, um, I imagine it's not gotten many like look throughs. I imagine it hasn't. Like I'm looking at this person's tweet here. It's got two likes and 367 views. And yet it's actually like something people need to know about. And so in a sense, I don't know how they're able to operate almost in secret, but in the open. Uh, it's very strange to me. 
Well, again, like for two years, I've been trying to like point this out because my entry point into the blockchain space was around um, children in preschool in South Africa being put on blockchain so that they could earn social credit and around ref- Syrian refugees having their retinal scans. groceries. So like when I came in the door on blockchain, it was those two primary framing experiences that it was about humanitarian quote unquote aid tied to biometric surveillance and children being turned into commodities for impact investing. And, you know, you would have thought I had three heads trying to talk to the people, even many people in the resistance to say, this is a problem, right? I mean, one of the papers that she did on quantum brain computer interfaces about the neural nanobots, literally they're talking about an economic construct, like a free market economy on your neurons in your brain. You know, and today there was, there's a guy, Cesar Hidalgo, who, it's very interesting, actually. He's part of this collective learning group at MIT, and now he's spun off a separate group. They've moved to Toulouse, France, but he's Chilean, and he was trained at the Pontifical University of Chile in Santiago and then trained at Notre Dame, so very Catholic, I'm presuming, went on to MIT, and it's all about data visualization and analytics, and he was doing a webinar on um, some sort of like I don't know, data visualization. And I've, I've been paying a, t- a lot of attention to Twitter because MIT has this relationship with Twitter and that's how he came across this stuff. He wanted to have, um, he, he was asserting something called uh, augmented democracy where you would have a digital twin do this radical democracy voting for you. Okay, so he's an up and comer. He's got the TED Talks, he's got all the stuff. And so he was doing a webinar today that I actually logged in on with UMass Amherst. It was a remote webinar. And it was literally, the whole webinar was about data analytics for individual countries' economies. And I'm thinking, dude, like he, he's the guy that would know all of this, right? There's going to be no, you know, and I, I shared the, the a screenshot of the blockchain neural economy in your brain. And I said, I would be interested in how this fits in with your economic thinking, you know, and they never reply, but these people would know exactly what that's about. And yet they don't talk about it broadly. I mean, yeah, there was that video to the public, but they keep up this pretense that, oh, sure, all the different countries are going to continue to have all their different economies and they're going to, you know, you're going to be engineering all of it. And I mean, he was doing a bunch of work in Brazil, actually, with managing the labor economics in Brazil. But I'm like, the, the future they're planning is that you put your brain in a robot. So how to, and you're working for multinational corporations that are all owned by BlackRock. So at what point do, does nationality exist? I don't know. Like, it's starting to get really fuzzy on an economic level. So... I don't know. It's very hard to have this conversation. I just wanted to clarify. I just looked it up. The Rothblatt reference that I made earlier is mm-hmm. it's trans Beeman. And like his whole thing is about like just reinventing like our species, you know, yeah. so like blending, like blended consciousness, like, um, like a shared or like replicable mind operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, I just did like a really quick Google and um, just the, the framing is so interesting. So Beeman and Transbeeman are terms of inclusiveness that make wow. it easier for us to avoid class wars and <laughs> to include cybernetic consciousness in our community. Um, so. Well, that's interesting because uh, Suzanne Gilder was Sanctuary AI. She was from D-Wave and she's the one who's behind the haptic, like put your brain in a robot with a haptic suit. 
in one of her TED talks that or it wasn't a TED talk, but it was a Singularity University presentation. What she was saying, it was quite interesting, her framing. Um, she was talking about like co community and sitting around the campfire and like the other and that the other would be like the robot coming and that, you know, in the battle days, you would be afraid of the other and you wouldn't let them sit by your campfire and tell stories. But today we're much more enlightened. So we should like embrace the robots at the campfire because if not, we're terrible people. <laughs> and so they frame the story that you can't, you can't be like, no, we don't like people who aren't like us, but they're not people, they're robots. Well, and I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are so miserable and so beaten down that uh, yeah I mean it, it 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 doesn't appeal to me any of this stuff but uh, I don't know I mean I think I don't know I, I work with a lot of 18 year olds who spend a lot of time like on technology and I don't know it seems far off but I, I worry that it isn't well, so ultimately this slide is sort of about pointing out that in order for you to get your mind file, they need to sort of authenticate you to your device, your sensor network, to your biometrics. And I think that again, um, Musk is a front for the cybernetic system, but this idea when he says that you will have free speech, but it would be authenticated is part of the idea of creating um, agents that have identifiers that can be then mirrored to track social relationships. And, and then that's happening in like a, a Twitter communication context, but the same thing would be related to the conditional money, you know, aspect or digital wallet that would become with, um, you know, food assistance or education vouchers and that sort of thing. Um, so, my question though is what's, What's unique about Elon Musk owning this company to create an authentic authentication process versus the previous whoever owned it? I think my, so I'm still playing with this idea a bit, but I was doing a lot of research this week around General Electric and um, is it Steinmetz? Um, like the direct current and the alternating current. And because there's a fascinating book if people have time to look into it. And I put a couple of uh, links to a C-SPAN interview with the author about Alfred Loomis and Tuxedo Park. Like they've been working on frequency, um, like the effects of frequency and waves on the human body since the late 1920s. This guy, Alfred Loomis, seems really central to the whole program. Um, he had a private laboratory in Tuxedo Park outside of New York City, and he was tapped to run the MIT Radiation Lab for microwave radar research um, before the U.S. went into the war. Like until the war was officially declared World War II, they knew it was coming and they wanted to start doing this, ramping up the scientific research around the Manhattan Project and other things, but they didn't have full authorization. So they, they tapped private individuals who were very wealthy, but coming out of the depression, there were not that many. So Loomis was really well positioned. And so just looking at frequency and electricity um, and alternating currents, and Andy, you might be able to help me out with this a little bit more, but there seems to be also like with the governor, there's there's an oppositional system like at play in the cybernetic, 
like keeping things going, like you have these polar opposites and they're working in opposition to one another. And so I think when you introduce these polarizing figures into the social system, you're like, yay, Elon Musk. No, Elon, you know, like you, you have these storylines that bifurcate and in the bifurcation, there's something that plays into the cybernetics of like the polar opposites in the system. But that's how I'm feeling about it lately. I don't know if you have any more thoughts from it. I'm not a scientist, but in looking at the patterns, it seems like there's something that the system, they need injections of polarizing stories, individuals that then like fracture and then like the, their reverberations through the system that are somewhat equally balanced. So my thought is like, maybe Elon is that like drop in the pond to be like, and then meanwhile, you know, all the hamster wheels are running behind getting things set up for the network because MIT has been had a very close relationship with Twitter for at least the past six or seven years. Yeah, that's kind of stuff is I'm, I'm not as familiar with. I mean, I know about like we were, I was talking with an, another person who's in working students for choice about the effects of converting direct current to alternating current that itself, that process creates frequencies that she actually was sensitive to. So, but I think you're talking about something else that's more like um, psychosocial and what's happened, like, but. It's, 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 but I, I think at a macro level and a micro level, there's something, it's all energy. It's like energy patterns, energy waves, and they know how to manipulate that in, in various modalities. And that's that. So I will say the other thing, and I'm gonna talk about this more this weekend with Jason, but um, the reason I was paying attention to Twitter was that, things that I was researching maybe four or five years ago, and I knew there was something about it, but I didn't know exactly what have like come back. So um, in 2015, Twitter set up a pilot experiment with technical support from MIT in a, a like a, a smallish town in Spain called it's J-U-N. I don't know how you'd pronounce that. Hun, Jun, like whatever, J-U-N in Spain. And so all of the people in the town were supposed to communicate with their government through Twitter. Like that was the program. Like it was a small town and they're like, okay, from now on for this amount of time, any request you have, you're going to make it through Twitter. And, and then they logged all of that and all of the networks in MIT did all of the analysis around it. But it said what was unique in this case was they had all of the people have to authenticate themselves. And so this was this early like way of doing social system mapping that again, now we're six years later, we're looking at taking that up a notch at a higher level. Um, and there was a lot of sentiment analysis and other things that were baked into analyzing all of those tweets. But that test bed, and it was interesting because there was an article that said like at the launch, they had this celebration and there was like a traffic circle with an obelisk with Twitter, like a Twitter obelisk and like cement, you know, panels with the people's names and their handprints on it. And it just felt very esoteric, like this idea of like the, the Twitter obelisk in Spain. Um, but if had I not understood about that pilot program, the idea of e-government, digital identity, and social network mapping wouldn't necessarily have stuck for me. But to me, it's like, oh, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Can I go to the next slide? Yeah. So this just comes back to, we had part of our conversation last time about um, you know, poverty management, um, making out the poor as people who are out to scam everyone else, the welfare queen paradigm. You know, 
this goes way back, right? You know, this is Reagan's policy. And, and this is what like led eventually to Clinton and the welfare reform bills that forced many mothers like to go to work, right? To leave their kids, put their kids in daycare and go to work in order to feed their kids. And within that frame, there was like the welfare queen story that was made up. And so it's kind of like 9-11 enforced the know your customer is that you create a scenario and then you say, well, of course we would need to authenticate people to make sure that people weren't scamming the system, that people weren't getting more than they deserve. And so I feel like the trajectory, again, the long lead time is you put these narratives in place and you condition how people think about it. I mean, I think at the time that this story broke that a majority of people who were receiving public assistance were like, white people in the South, right? They weren't black people, but like through that narrative crafting, they sort of changed it over. And then they were like, oh, look, here's this one thing that somehow exemplifies people who are taking advantage of the system. When that, you know, there, that, that, that was a conject, you know, that story was largely constructed and not accurate, but that's what sticks with people is the spectacle. And so that's the kind of thing that just like you would authenticate yourself on Twitter so that they know who's who, that you're not getting like nefarious actors is the same with the conditional cash transfer system. So we can. I can, I can only imagine, you know, a place like, for example, Netflix has been on like the business news in terms of, you know, how many people like our password sharing so imagine like this, uh, you know, like I think like Netflix where everyone has to authenticate themselves, like, you know, through facial recognition to ah. normalize, then, you know, then you can, like people, the regular people can work the, the loopholes, right? And the right. system. So it makes me think of that, you know, situations where we share stuff, you know, share accounts. Right. And, you know. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, they're going to make it more. And the thing is like the, the biometrics aren't even necessarily like facial recognition, like it's like, where is your IP address? Or, you know, oh, we know that normally you turn on your computer at this time in the morning, right? On Friday, <laughs> like they all have so much data that they can say, oh, this is an unusual pattern. And um, I have to say, like, even though I'm, you know, I, I suspect, cause he seems to have a lot of insider information, Cory Doctorow, um, I don't know, like for young adult novels, the, the something that he ta it's taught me a lot about, um, when I, you know, maybe four or five years ago when I started looking at, but Little Brother, um, and also for the win, but Cory Doctor's Little Brother, like it, it's it's set in the Bay Area and it's supposed to be sort of like high school, like techno anarchists, different things, but about the systems of surveillance. And one of the ones was like, oh, like an irregular subway pattern, right? You have a subway pass, but they can track like, oh, you never go over here. And then it, there's these red flags. So in the cybernetic systems of the digital footprints, like aggregated over time and over many years, they can like discern anomalies in the patterns and then zoom in on that. So it's it's really hard to hide. This is even scarier than I thought, you know, like I hadn't thought about that, you know, how insidious that is because also in San Francisco, the Bay Area, my brother keeps telling me, get the, get the, um, so think called, um, what is that card, Eduardo, that we use for the bus here? Clipper card. So the clipper card. And then it was a, a card, right, that uh, you added value into. Mm, yeah. That, but it wasn't registered to any particular person. Now you can 
carry your clipper card in your phone. And my brother keeps insisting me to get that that uh, that, and I, and I keep refusing. I'm, and I and I try to explain to him. You know, I don't want it on me because uh, I was already weirded out by the clipper card itself. Yeah, in your phone, you know, uh, and and so you know, again, you're talking about tracking your patterns, tracking your life, you know, and it's just so scary, so insidious, so you know, um, intrusive, and you know. Uh, yeah, I don't want any of that. Well, like in, in Philadelphia, our regional transit authority is SEPTA. And when they first rolled out our cards, it was in partnership with MasterCard. So they were essentially trying to set up debit cards for unbanked people, but the interest rates were crazy high. Like it was a scamming kind of thing. But you could imagine them linking it to like a good citizen card, right? Or like, like script right? Oh, do good things and you can get money earned onto your card and then use it for other things. And I can totally see like one, it's shifting from actual cash to, um, you know, you accrue tokens or credits or things like there's these city coins programs that are happening um, by doing nice things in your community, right? Volunteering and things. And then this, this, you know, the money gets accrued to your card, but it's, it's always going to be a predatory sort of structure. And there, there's just one more thing that I wanted to add that I find very suspicious that, you know, is pushing people into using, you know, your phone to pay because I gotta be honest, even myself, I use my phone to pay at times, you know, in or access my bank account with my phone, like, you know, going to an ATM machine. And, um, but I work in the restaurant industry and so I gotta go to different stores. The point is that there is a coin shortage, right? Uh, apparently. Oh. So, you know, they, they're encouraging people to use their cards or their, you know, or Apple Pay or whatever, you know, Android Pay, whatever. But it's just, I find that story that with the coin shortage so suspicious, you know, in, in I see an association to like pushing people into more technology, you know, because, uh, you yeah. know, coinage is inconvenient, right? I guess that's, that's kind of it's the It's hard to, to deposit a check too, if you don't want to... Um have your app like the app or whatever well it's interesting because i i did um there's a really interesting talk that i pulled some clips on from this guy david rue who is a um like a venture capital investor silver lake capital partners and involved in like biotechnology space and he was talking about like the automation of the economy and banking specifically and that how when they installed all the atms they needed fewer tellers but then the people who were left became salespeople. So the people who were left in the banks weren't handling your money. They were selling you products. And then eventually it's going to shift because I feel like as they go to digital script, like eventually like the digital script is maybe like the thing, like the seed in your hand, right? Like, and imagine these debits, like you're not even going to an ATM. It just knows, like it knows when you get on the bus and it just debits like off of your, whatever your body is, you know, all of that stuff is happening and that's your bank, right? But that's, it's all virtualized and it's all tied, you know, potentially to wearables. Cause I have a, have a link later on that talks about where like banks, digital banks that track your spending and shock you if you, if you overspend. And so I, you know, you mix all of the, the the Internet of Things technologies with the banking systems, and then also selling you debt products and finance products. It's and then trying to keep track of it in digital space because now, like, you don't even get paper statements anymore. You just you sign up for something once, and then 
it's debited for you forever. <laughs> like you, if you forget about it, you know, it's, it's hard to keep track of all of the things flowing out of your account. Cause it's, it's just, it's very ephemeral, but, and yet now they want to set up wearable technology that can shock you. If, I think there's another, like, like this whole tracking people, you know, I, I also see an, uh, a link to credit, right? Credit is basically tells who's a, a trustworthy person, right? To be given some money. Hmm. Um, and so when you can trace people's day, every activity, every single activity, you know, their patterns, then imagine the, the level of insidiousness in terms of quote unquote credit, you know, and who you, who the system can trust and can't trust and who, you know, for example, even like our social media and the fringe ideas, right. And who gets to decide that and, and let us access uh, certain things uh, based on trust. And so well, literally when I started doing my research on blockchain Amply, which was the pre-K attendance app, they literally said children could start to build their social capital in preschool. Literally, like they would know if you were a regular attendee or if your parents dropped you off late or whatever, like, and, and that's what Charles Hoskinson has said in his Cardano, like the clip I have from him, like we will track you, your metadata from preschool, and we will know who is a good actor and worthy of having a job. I mean, and they, they just come out and say it. And at this point, again, there, there are many people who are making the link that are linking like central bank digital currency or controlled society, but they're framing it as a China problem or like, this is the Chinese social. I'm like, no, the debt finance problem goes back to like, you know, at least like the Pope, you know, and the finance I mean, this stuff goes way back. It's not just one country's problem. And it's like, I think the U S is probably one of the, the leaders in creation of debt products, like innovative debt products. That's what we do. We create innovative debt products. So um, you know, they're, they're not getting the particulars of it's at this point, I feel like people need to get more specific and it's definitely not just about central bank digital currency. It's about a lot more. And the, these conditional cash transfers are something I, I think it's, it's core to the story because they have been templating this stuff on poor people in the global South and, you know, in, you know, in through welfare reform since the nineties easily like people should be making that connection so no the whole like you know who's a trustworthy like citizen um i remember i think it was john stepling might be wrong had a great uh tweet a while back that said the unvaccinated person is the new welfare mom Mm. right like just this kind of scapegoat oh like they're irresponsible they're um a hazard blah 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 bad for their children all of that yeah may i make one comment arison because i think what you just said is that it's beyond the cryptocurrency i just shared a link from venify which is a company that's supposed to be a, a technology that is in the uh i think it says here um a protecting identity machine it's a machine identity protection technology and a pioneer and i shared the link in the chat and i i quickly saw it here and it says here in one of the in the in the link that i shared it says four new uses for blockchain beyond cryptocurrency i'm not going to read everything i'm just going to share because it's relevant to what we're talking about relief Mm -hmm. welfare authentication and currently and we didn't mention it here but because the refugee crisis is something that's talked about a lot in the mainstream right now um 
it's talking about here about refugee aid, how millions of people could actually benefit from blockchain, it says on this website. And it's talking about, and you might be familiar with this, that there was a, a project run by the United Nations World Food Program uh, that was completed on the 31st of May, 2017, that was designed to direct resources to thousands of Syrian, Syrian refugees by giving them cryptocurrency-based vouchers that could be redeemed in participating markets. And so this was supposed to be a relief effort of place, or this is supposed to be given, but it's, it's also a saying here, and they say it out just like this on the website, it was also a process of gathering more detailed analytics and exactly how many transactions were conducted and to also right. take data information from these refugees. And we're talking about 10,000 individuals that is listed here uh, on Coindesk and also just on this website. So it's it's you want like do you want this relief do you want this universal basic income do you want this you be you know if you want uh, it's these conditional cash transfers that we're talking about that i'm as we're talking it it's unfolding uh this what you're sharing with us it's revealing that i see how predatory this could be for folks that are going to be desperate in refugee camps people who are going to be desperate in countries on the global south like in my country and other places yeah. who are going to decide and have to pick between their lives, their livelihood, their families, their 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 poverty state, etc., and and say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll I'll sign up to this digital whatever and get my data stored in and and into this into this hub, this this cloud, no, into this the world of 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 collecting their data. And so I'm I'm just seeing how as we're talking about this, how predatory this is, and how it relates to the refugee crisis as well. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, um, like I wrote um, early on an, an article called Who is Pulling the Muppet Strings? Because there's a program, the Syrian refugees were a huge test bed for a lot of these technologies. And it's interesting because a lot of them are actually relocated to Scandinavian countries, which are really cutting edge and pretty racist. <laughs> and so like these biometric payments, like pay with your eye scan, like these things were happening in Sweden and Denmark and places like that and Norway. They, they These were the top, like the leaders in developing these technologies. So they've been a test bed. And in this case of um, the MacArthur Foundation was funding a, a prize to solve a global problem. And it ended up being the International Rescue Committee and the Behavioral Insights Team, the Nudge Unit in the UK and Sesame Workshop and IBM. They were in, they were putting edu like tablets in the hands of kids in for online learning um, and then tracking the families for their behavior and compliance. But Sesame Workshop actually has a whole venture capital arm. And this is all connected to pay for success finance. So yeah, the refugees are terrible. And I can see very much like with Ukraine, maybe when people get back, like we know that Ukraine has been setting up digital government on a smartphone, like that was all in the works. So maybe when people come back, they'll all get their resettlement you know, programs on digital, you know, digital wallets. That's, I'm sure that that's what's coming. So I know thing, I'm a little, uh, may, oh, should I or no? No, you can't. I listen, do you, have you heard, did, was it here that we discussed it, but the way that they're figuring out, uh, they're testing technologies and the way they're figuring out people's, people that have died, like in Bachan or I forget where in Ukraine, but the, the mass murders of the, the, that they murdered, the Russians that they were they were uncovering the people that were in mass graves, that they're using the facial recognition technology in order to identify fam, uh, people, who, Ukrainians. And so I'm not sure if we discussed it here or if I heard it somewhere, but I'm 
it's I'm very sympathetic, obviously, to anyone whose families are died because of war. It's the byproduct of war, right? I mean, these are yeah. these are crimes that are committed, and this is happening because of war. But I'm not so sure if figuring out, like you know, using facial recognition technology tested on currently in, right. in for for in the name of seeking your family or in the name of this is what why we're doing it for in this in these causes when you're just uh, developing technology to get databases yeah so well, even I mean you had mentioned about the ghosts and I think Andy last time you mentioned something about sort of like energetic impressions and digital representations and I don't know there's a lot to but this facial recognition about. will be used on people all of us know for to to track us everywhere to to surveillance us even on the streets or wherever we're going and to just lock in on our every step Anyway, that's well, let me, let me get through a few more slides. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll hit a few more. I'll, I'll go quick for through a few and then we'll take a break. Um, Andy, so again, last time we talked, this is from the World Bank slides. Uh, I think this was 2014. Uh, CCTs are the conditional cash transfers. And they're talking about, oh, you can have all kinds here. You can have ones for school. You can have ones for health visits. And that includes prenatal vaccines and child growth, which is measurement, like weight and height. Um, workshops, which is all the training. And I know in Philadelphia, there are a lot of people like if you get housing assistance or your public housing, like you're expected to go and like do workshops and seminars and like be trained in various things. Um, and then productive activities. So, that, you know, there's a labor component to that. And so there's, you can see how many different countries are involved. Um, you know, Macedonia, Romania, Turkey, Philippines, Togo, Senegal, you know, Pakistan, India, like there's a lot of countries. Now, again, um, I keep asking why more people aren't talking about this piece while we're so fixated on central bank digital currency, because this stuff has been in the works and is very broadly situated around the world, but, you know, in more in places that would be identified as needing aid, quote unquote. So we can keep going. Um, so this, I just wanted to touch on, this is from actually... It's a thought experiment, so it hasn't been put in place, but it's a report uh, bought from 2018 by the State of Illinois Task Force on Blockchain. And again, this is one of my earliest experiences with blockchain. Um, it's putting uh, SNAP, so food assistance. Uh, they're imagining how they can put that on blockchain with a welfare applicant who gets a digital wallet. And when they go to the store, depending on what they buy, they'll get a kickback if they get buy the right thing. And, and so a lot of people might look at that and go, well, that makes sense, right? Because we want people to eat well and we want people to be healthy and they should buy the things we want them to buy, right? But what a, what a use case like this doesn't take into consideration is one that people have like access to fresh food in their neighborhood, you know, that they're not working three jobs, that they're not living out of the back of a car, that they have access to a kitchen. I mean, and that the fact is, is that, Ultimately, the way this game works is that even if you do all the right things, they'll cut the welfare benefit back so that you always have to make the right choice to get to the end of the month. So they're not, you know, if, if they save money, eventually they'll just cut, cut the food stamps back so that everyone has to make the right choice, even when the choice is impossible. So I say that in terms of these conditional cash transfers can start off and look like, oh, they're helpful. Like they're helping people like bridge this gap or create, cover this need. But ultimately, I believe that all of the UBI, all of these transfers will start to be coded with smart money and incentive, incentivized behaviors. And again, 
you could substitute the food for a healthcare choice, right? You could substitute the food for an educational curriculum choice. And so the people who are going to be offering that quote unquote assistance are going to have their preferred choice in whatever category it is, whether it's health, whether it's education, whether it's um, you know mental health treatment, whether it's food. And largely their preferred choice are, is gonna be a choice that benefits the system as a whole. <laughs> and, and we know that the system as a whole is pretty much structurally broken. So then you have to just question, is this, is it appropriate? Is it humane to put people into these cybernetic feedback loops? I'm willing to like, take, I don't know if you yeah. guys have any thoughts on that. I mean, well, first off, um, the, it's the same logic that they use on prisoners um, where they put them like those, but they put those clips on them. Um, people who are paroled or, or who are, well, if people are put in prisons, but people who are allowed to live outside the prison, but they have the, the clips on them, they, they, they don't have a right to their own choices and privacy because they've given that up because they've been, you know, they've been accused and convicted of, of a crime and you can't be trusted. And so therefore you don't have the right to make your own free choice or, or a choice that cannot be somehow scrutinized by an, an overseer. And now we've taken people who, who now at least under capitalism have not even committed what capitalism calls a crime. Um, uh, but they have the, essentially they, they are not, they're the losers of the system. They're the ones who don't have the resources. So because of that now, you don't have the right to not have everything you do be scrutinized. And I think the thing that comes, that I feel like um, that's increasingly coming to understand when we talk about these test cases of Syria and test cases of Ukraine, test cases of Mexico, is the story is not just, hey, that's not right that they're doing that to people in Mexico or Syria or Ukraine. But the story is, these are beta tests. These are alpha tests for something that are going to be much broader and that are going to wrap all of us into a, a matrix of overseen choices um, right. and choices that we, we are that are that are whose whose aim is not towards when we are directed or or moved towards a choice, like you said, Allison. It's not going that movement. The thing that moves us to that choice is not going to be on the basis of something that's that I might think is good for me but it's gonna be on the basis of a system or an institution or a corporation that says, this is gonna be good for us. And this is gonna be good for what we're trying to accomplish. Right. Um, and if, if, if Marxists are right, the interests of the capitalist class are not just different than the interests of the working class, they're opposite and opposing. And so if you are basically giving the institutions whose, actually, whose actual interests run not just different than yours, but run counter to yours. And if you are saying they're gonna be the choosers of you, then you are in a very bad position. And that's not just true for people in Mexico or Ukraine and Syria, that is true for all workers. They're now. superior, Andy, <laughs> they're the superior choosers. Yeah, but I mean, but that is their language. Of, of, yeah, no. You know, so it's it's very- Yeah, I wanna, for anybody who might be watching that's like more on the libertarian or conservative side, I wanna point out that even though this use case is the government, this same scenario in programmable money could apply to a faith-based institution, right? It could apply to BlackRock having a portfolio of people applying it that way. It could apply to some sort of random industrial bank 
It could apply to somebody's sovereign wealth fund. So it can be any pot of money. And that's what I keep saying that while this might pertain to a central bank digital currency, any holding company could issue debt and tie it to programmable money um, in the same way that a government can. And I, I think in many respects, the plan is to bankrupt governments to the point that this gets to the point that everything gets run by private money. And then you ultimately what you have is free markets in managed humanity, managed natural systems. Um, but most of those pots of money are not individuals making small grants, but literally portfolios run by AI. It is literally going to be like the Aladdin BlackRock AI machine running the world to profit itself. It's not even going to be human. So I just I just want to emphasize that because I think some people might see that and say, see, we got to get the government out of things. And I'm like, you know what? You could replace the government with BlackRock. It would be the same thing. So we touched on this a little bit more, but this was about like you create the problem, right? You create the dependency. You you take you you might start off with a program that looks good, but with the plan of like ten to fifteen years down the road, then you undercut it, right? You take it off the the table. So in Mexico, we talked about this a bit last time that part of the 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 economic catastrophe that led to this the exacerbation of poverty in Mexico after NAFTA was also like the reduction of the tortilla subsidy, which made food less affordable. It put more farmers, small farmers out of business and sort of redirect, like enabled the consolidation of the food systems and then linking it to the cash transfers. Because nutrition is a central part of what justifies the program. We can. And I, I did touch about the, on this a little bit last time too, that managing people's minds and their mental function is actually directly connected to their gut health and that major multinational crazy chemical companies, formerly munitions companies like DuPont, are interested in your microbiome, right, and managing that. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got the managed precision nutrition, which, um, Eduardo, when you mentioned the food, World Food Program, um, I have a uh, Leo Saracino, who's doing some research around um, CELO, C-E-L-O, um, sort of a, a blockchain, I think, uh, platform, and it's connected with the World Food Program. So you can imagine something that this, again, ties to sort of the pseudoscience of eugenics, where they will pull your genes and say, ah, have we got the right nutraceutical for you, right? You know, we've got just what you need to optimize your brain to what we need you to be. And so I think that's a piece. But then we have... Um, I, I overlaid it on native corn is now protected, which is great. Only I can see also as an impact market that there will be probably built into the sustainability or the revitalization. There will be some cost, cost offset created that will link it into some data analytics program, right? So they're not going to just protect native corn because it's the right thing to do. I would say keep your eyes open because there will probably be something that will be like this is what native corn adds to the economy. How many acres do we plant and how many people can we get to plant it? And how many youth can we train to know about like, and again, not that any one of those things is necessarily bad, but it will all be quantified and fed into the global brain system because they, it's not enough just to do the right thing for the right reason. It's all about getting the data. Um, 
And this is just sort of a matter of scale. Again, this is from this 2014 World Bank report, but they're talking about um, the paper process, right? So in the mid to late 90s, and, and you guys, you know, Eduardo, maybe you could speak to this more than myself, but the idea of processing all of the paperwork was pretty complex, right? And part of what was done as part of the Mexico program was to develop standards for record keeping and to be able to scale things more efficiently. So within the schools and within the health, health um, uh, units or whatever, like the health clinics, they had to develop the systems for standardizing the records to keep track of everything. Because again, if they couldn't make sure you did what they said, like the whole, it was pointless because the whole point is control. So they need to like measure the documentation that you, you complied with the delivery of the service. And so there was a lot of infrastructure that was required initially to get the documentation and the administration up. So now we've reached a point that we're going into, you know, cloud computing, wearable technology, digital currency, where we're at the next phase, right? And I think that's what's going to enable it to scale even more than it already has. And the only thing I can add is that we are now in Mexico, we are now um, going towards uh, QR, QR codes. Oh, okay. Um, um, so, I mean, the this process of, of is getting more uh, refined or polished through um, getting into a more centralized way of connecting things. And just connecting it back to California, you remember the daily pass that was in the Los Angeles school district, again, QR code. And that the first time I ever actually saw a QR code in connection with a child was with Rocket Ship Academy charter schools in the Bay Area. And they were working with Clever, which was the interoperable data system. And with kindergartners, they said, oh, these poor children... Um, it takes the teacher an hour to log them all in on their devices, and that's too much time. So here's a QR code on a, you know, a, a laminated card that the kids use to log in. To, they, they hold it up to the camera to log into their daily um, uh, different, but it was many different programs. So the idea of Clever would that it would be across all of the many different online programs the kids used. It would aggregate all of the data. And it was so sad. There's a short video about Rocketship and Clever um, where you know, that it's, you know, it's predominantly Latino kids and the, the headsets are all falling over their eyes because, you know, they're trying to do the Chromebooks and they're, I mean, they're just like zoned out like their kids, like there's a little girl in a laundry basket, like they're reading, but it's just sad. And, but they're like, these kids get to decorate their card with stickers and it's really nice. They can make them totally personal, right? So you've got these impersonal things that represent their digital twin with like little kid kindergarten stickers. And it's just sad. So yeah, with the QR code, I can totally see that. Eduardo, I just wanted to ask, so, cause I know you were there pretty recently. Like when you say it's normalized, like, are you talking about like restaurants and concerts and stuff? And is it just like, people are pretty accepting of it? it it's happening in Mexico city a lot, the, the move to the QR code. So in restaurants, in most places now you have, instead of a menu, now you have to, you have to, use your phone to get the menu on your phone instead of getting an actual physical menu. I had to advocate and said many times, I want a physical menu. I know you have one. <laughs> you still have the ones from before and you have to say that. Um, not, and so they don't, they're kind of surprised you don't have a phone, but there is a move, there's moving. And then I'm sure it's going to creep into more uh, remote areas. But as of right now, uh, what the remote areas are experiencing is more internet connection and, and the QR codes will come along after that, no? But 
I kept having to do the same thing in Seattle before I left. Like they just did not have menus in the restaurants. And, you know, it started as like a health thing for COVID, but then it just became like, well, it's easier this way. We don't have to sanitize them. So we're just going to keep it this way. And yeah, every time I have to be like, can I please get a regular menu? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was before I was just banned from the restaurants completely. But <laughs> Yeah. And I think the word process, like the idea of the process being important, is something that cannot be um, just overlooked. Um, the reason I'm not working in the San Francisco Unified School District is a process reason, not a health reason. Um, they wanted my vaccine status and they wanted to know my vaccination status, but my willingness to tell them, but give it to them in paper on my file is my unwillingness to do to not put it onto Smartsheets, which was the same program that Microsoft uses to create their daily pass at LA. That's the reason I don't have a job is wow. that is not because I, I basically said, you know what, I'll give you my VAC status. I'll put it in a paper piece of paper on a file, but I'm not going to put on Smartsheets. And they said, that's good enough for us. You're gone, you know? And so I, I do think that this process is also um, important as a, just an understood mechanism of control. It's again, authentic. It's authentic. That word authentic is authenticization yeah. or whatever. Um, and that, this is going to be part of the thing we are going to have to look at and to understand that the process has to both be opposed and broken down. And we have to build human processes, which is, I think, why you keep coming back, um, Allison, to that indigenous model to say, to remind ourselves this, the way we're doing things seems to have nothing to do with what is human in us. So we might have to go backwards and, re and start from the, start from the beginning about what processes are actually important for people. That's a very good point about your your experience, Andy. Thank you for linking that. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm trying to remember what I wrote on this. Okay. So it says, I'll just, uh, oh, oh, this is from my blog post. I guess it was talking about the numbers of people. So, um, so every two months that families had to prove they were fulfilling their co-responsibilities, the documentation was collected through 117,000 schools and 17,000 health centers across the country. Um, and that Santiago Levy, who was the person who was connected to Boston University, he actually introduced the idea of the electronic health record. So here it was, that's Obamacare, you know, the ACA, and that was Zeke Emanuel, right? And, and you know, we've got neoliberal, the Emanuel family, you know, the, the RE, the entertainment one, Ron, the Ram, the Chicago one, and Zeke, the biomedical one that, I don't know, I guess we should all be dead by the time we're 71. Um, yeah, but get to get that electronic health record. And then really... I think the digital twinning, the priority is going to be, I mean, there's going to be sort of three areas. One is the elect, uh, education space, the health space, and then your government identity space. Um, and actually, oh, here you go, Eduardo. So um, the initial overview of the Mexican pilot was done by the International Food Policy Research Institute. So this was all outside of Mexico, and it, it was connected to um, uh, researchers with the UC Berkeley, University of Pennsylvania, Yale, University of Chicago. So the people who were really interested in how this program worked 
were the people outside of Mexico. Like they were the ones, and then um, the uh, Inter-American Development Bank gave a billion dollars to, to expand it. So it was definitely a test bed for, um, you know, what was coming next, right? And again, it's a pretty long lead time because this thing started in the late 90s. And it's only now just beginning to scale digitally. But, you know, these, these the interest behind this, it is an imperative, like it's a domination imperative. It's not any one person's idea to do this. It's like Musk and Twitter. It's not any one person. It's the whole the whole structure that needs to be interrogated. So, okay, so soft and hard conditionals, this is like how much, how difficult do we, are we gonna be, right? And like with Andy, like they were like, you're out of here. You don't do exactly what we say, you're gone, right? So on the one hand, they have the soft version, which is like, oh, it would, it would be nice if you would do these things, right? And then, um, and then eventually they're like, well, we're going to keep an eye on you, but we're not going to do anything if you don't do it. And then, you know, now we have like hard, you know, penalties if you don't comply. And so Mexico is in the hard conditionality um, realm um, at this point. Like if you, if you don't play by their rules, like you're done, like the program is done for you. You don't get your money or you don't get your food money or what have you. And so again, I think it's sort of like, it's what we've seen so much over the past two years, right? There's this loosening of regulations. There's like, well, it's on the books, but we won't enforce it. But like, oh, now we'll take it away. No, we'll put it back. Like you just never know where you are in the continuum. It's like, and then at some point you just hit the hard line and they're just gonna make it the hard line. And then if you don't comply, um, you know, it will be maximum penalty. And again, this is a World Bank document. Right. So, you know, they're showing like, see, there's some options. There's some options for you guys. Yeah. Did you see the story? Brandy sent this to me about the fact that 73 million phone users have been shut off in Nigeria because they're not yet willing to get onto the digital ID system in Nigeria. No, no, I so, was not aware of that. Yeah. Like they basically shut off all 73 million people's phones. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's in the heart, I guess. Um and this looks like dog training to me. Because mm-hmm. they're all going to eventually get over to the right side. Yeah. <laughs> you know, eventually they're going to nudge you over there. It's You don't get to stay on the soft side. Right. And well, then imagine when the phone service actually is all of your money. But in dog training, you, that the hard side, you get until the dog learns its, learns its rules. And then it gets the soft side. And you do it, oh. you know, and... So I guess that's the cybernetics. When we get the soft side, it's it's a wrap at that point. Like if if it's all soft, then it's over. They've that we're we're in the we're in the game. We're we're in the trap. Like we're we've already been trained. So yeah. the only thing that indicates that we're making any progress is the hard part. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's just this is gross. I know, and this is how they talk about people like babies. Literally, this is like. The way they talk about hungry children, they, they put this stuff up there. That's what I'm saying. It's not human. No, this thing no. is not human. Okay. All right. We haven't even got to eugenics yet. Okay, here's the eugenics. <laughs> I keep talking about the Fabian socialists. 
because I do feel like there is this thing of like the settlement, the worthy poor, that you do what you're told, that there's some measure of social acceptability. It's built into the social like progressivism, scientific management of society. And this really came out of like, I was not aware of eugenics in the left until relatively recently. I was like, really? Nobody told me about the Fabians, right? And so it's a classist thing. It's this idea of like, oh, we're going to have Fabian socialism, but it's, it's going to be like the people sitting in the rattan chairs with the fancy hats get to decide for the poor people what the poor people get to do. And so it's important to know that the Webbs, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, Beatrice Webb and Sydney Webb, maybe they were the couple and they actually created the London School of Economics. So they were like the founders of London School of Economics, um, which is central to the impact investing space. So you can just see, again, this is just an Oxford review, but they're talking about eugenics, mental deficiency, and Fabian socialism, because the other element is like physical deficiency and, um, you know, people who are up to snuff mentally, right? Like there's both sides of things and that not up to snuff can also be people who have mental illness, but in some ways the mental illness may be caused by trying to relate to societies that are like really, really broken and trying to fit fit into that. Right. It's not, maybe not the person's problem. It's the structural problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to click forward. Um, So, yeah. So here you see the London school of economics. Uh, This is fairly recently uh, 2021. They just launched the Marshall Institute launches a 50 million pound social impact accelerator, right? So the Fabian socialists didn't really change at all in you know all of those years. They're still looking at like managing society for impact, right? And and clearly that impact is going to be tied to uh, profitable outcomes for the people who can invest in the poverty. Okay, we can keep going. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so this is a clip from January and Corbin shows up in Mexico and is going to like talk about how important it is to care for all of the poor Mexican kids. And like he exemplifies this thing because he his his third wife is a banker. She's she was from Mexico and she was a banker. So they're going to hook up all of the kids in Chiapas probably on blockchain to get them some early literacy. And is that dude on the far left that that Amla? Yeah. Every day is um, very impressive and shows a degree of openness in government, which is not, is not found in many countries, indeed anywhere at all in the world. And I think we should uh, recognize that in uh, uh, President Lopez Obrador's approach to government. And um, as somebody who's visited Mexico many times over many years, my wife is Mexican, I'm very impressed with a lot of the changes that are happening at the moment. Because Mexico is faced with many problems. The greatest one, in my view, is the inequality in the living standards of the population and the poverty of many people in particular parts of Mexico. I've been in Chiapas over the last few days and I've seen for myself that levels of inequality. But a government intervention to ensure that there is development in the poorest places, particularly rural development, improvements in education and in health and in food supply for the poorest people is is and will make a massive difference. There is nothing more wasteful in this world 
than consigning children to a life of poverty where they don't achieve in education, they don't achieve their potential, and the whole society loses out. We're all damaged by inequality. So again, like if you don't, if you don't have the right lens, right? If you're like, when this came out, I couldn't help myself. I was on Twitter and I think I found every single person who quote tweeted it. And I said, he's not on the right side. This is about creating impact markets and children and like getting their data and doing all these things. And for the most part, all of like the sort of progressive people's response was just like, yeah, that's my kind of politician. That's perfect. Like more of that, more of that. And that's how they play people because you don't actually understand the structure and you don't understand the Fabian socialism. Like you don't understand what is planned with ready nation and impact markets and Mexican children. And, and the fact that, you know, and, and maybe Eduardo, you, you have some thoughts, but is it the, the new, there's like a, a lot of development that's happening in the Yucatan, right? Around like there's a railroad and a lot of like new economic zones and they're bringing all of this redevelopment. But my understanding is, I mean, there's also a lot of sort of um, violence from the right wing against people like indigenous people there. And then there's concerns from the locals that they're creating these railroads and these, these sort of structural impositions to cordon off and like as to create physical barriers to certain communities to sort of in a, in a program to, you know, transform them into this new dust, like, you know, in fourth industrial revolution, but really to dispossess them at the same time under the guise of caring, right. Under the guise of like economic development and poverty alleviation. Um, the railroad that is being, well, that is fun. That's being funded by AMLO who is supposed to be this progressive liberal and left president, which I was, I, I, <laughs> If you look at episodes past, I was very supportive of it, thought of he was some savior because that's what we all thought as Mexicans. And he was an act, he started as an activist and he worked with syndicalist uh, organizations in, in down in the south of Mexico. He's now using these capitalist adventures, cutting down forests in the middle of in, in the Yucatan and, and, and to build this railroad. And then to the vaqueros as, 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 or you know, the the the, the the differences between the indigenous people. I think that's also in Guatemala. Can can speak. It's like constantly the the ranchers that are that are separating themselves from the indigenous people. I mean, I think people think that Mexicans are all or Latinos are all just this. We just are all the same. We have these differences between these indigenous the indigenous people and the ranchers. And there is this, there is a there is a desire for them just to be uh, take away their lands. Um, Kenny, you want to say something around that? I mean, that it just ties to like the whole process of at least how I understand capitalism from its very inception. You know, you, you got to dispossess people, taking them away from their, you know, the, the levels of autonomy, you know, and direct dependency to the land. That's literally what happened in Guatemala. The wars of the 80s and 90s was about private property. You know, it, it, yes, communism, right? Because but indigenous people were used to sharing land and stuff. And so in the name of progress, right, these presidents acting on behalf of Chiquita Banana or, you know, uh, United Fruit and, and other corporations like that, um, the military came into these communities to dispossess people, you know, in, in the name of progress. And, and I guess I don't know exactly what's happening in Mexico, but it just sounds familiar to me, you know, because, again, yes, those words 
killed that in Guatemala, like 200,000 people died for in 36 years of the civil war. Um, and supposedly was, you know, it, it was framed under the, it, during the Cold War, right? But but in reality, it was about private property, you know, and indigenous people defending their indigenous ancestral lands, you know, and, and how they de de directly dependent, their subsistence dependent directly from the land without having to ask for permission or show anybody a paper, you know, to say that they own that property. You know, they just shared property. There were, there were you know, a lot of practices that were broken down again through violence, through the imposition of private property and the legalization of, you know, the parceling of land and who has the right to use those lands. And so again, um, this is interesting because I know that in the Yucatan too, in that in that whole area of Mexico, uh, the, the whole uh, concept of a hills, right? Uh, is very alive where people, sh you know, if you work the land, it's yours. If you don't work it for two years, uh, you know, I'm summarizing, but it's no longer yours. But that's been sort of the deal people had. But now it, it, it's not surprising that in the name of progress, you you know, you have these corporations come to eliminate all those agreements that are very rooted in ancestral practices that actually don't depend on government. <laughs> it just depends on the communities agreeing to it. And I can see it like a lot of what's coming because I'm trying to remember, I think his wife might even have some sort of sustainable coffee investments or something like that, that they are going to, they will overlay regulations around sustainability, but they're probably ones that can only be met by very connected corporations and will disadvantage owners, you know, in that larger thing. So if you're connected, you can get the sustainability rating to get your environmental social governance qualified, you know, to get outside capital, you know, invested, but it won't necessarily be local cooperatives unless they can turn the cooperatives into impact markets too. And I do think that there is like, I think Raul has been doing some research into cooperatives in Mexico, that there's impact metrics that are attached to cooperatives. So those will probably be targeted for incursion at some point. And the other part about dispossessing people is that you create a labor force, you know, <laughs> like it, yeah. when, when the corn tortilla, the corn subsidy was, you know, stripped from Mexico, uh, a lot of people were forced to f go into the labor international labor market, you know, come to the U.S. or go to a U.S. corporation like the Green Giant. You know, I mentioned that in the previous episode. Right, that that's a good point. I have co-workers that work with the land. Uh, they did struggle, but then their struggles became, after that was stripped away, they were thrown into the labor market. They had no other way of subsisting, surviving because their corn was not valuable at all in the market for them. Well, I will say too, with the, the target for the children is that we have to remember that within these conditional cash transfers and the impact markets, they really want, these are the children to live in the metaverse, right? And so I think that in the name of progress, they're going to need to break down their social bonds in their community and probably try to transition them into structured schools, certified schools, certified preschools, things that, again, on the surface, you'd be like, oh, quality, right? But quality to what end? Quality is meaning to groom them to accept this future that is increasingly disconnected from the real and more in these gamified worlds. Because they're there. And that's the next international labor force is the metaverse builders, right? To code. You know, we're going to train you up to appreciate, to want, love the metaverse and want to code and live in the metaverse and create digital value. And those, so. 
just the last comment, all this stuff that these people are talking about in this video, you know, it, to me, it sounds like the civilizing process, right? Like bringing everyone into the civilized structures of the world because they need to be saved and educated. You know, it, right. it reminds me of the, you know, uh, Kipling's uh, White Man's Burden. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, but a lot of people, like, I mean, hundreds of people retweeted, loved this, said how great it was. And I'm like, no, 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 It's not what you think. But everybody wants there to be something nice. So they're like, oh, someone's finally saying something nice. I'll, I'll, I'll like that. I'm like, no, they just know how to yank your chain. Yeah. Jessica, do you want to comment on this thing? Because there's something I want to say about Corbin. Um, yeah, I mean, I just on that last point of about civilizing like I don't know how many times Corbin said education in that two or three minutes like it was a lot and yeah I'm sure like sort of mainstream progressives yeah like you're saying you know reading through the people's retweets or whatnot Allison like I, I understand like that people are hearing that from a different frame but I mean if you look back right like the history of colonization education's arguably like the most powerful weapon especially when you're looking at it from like an intergenerational um frame right and we know like a lot of these people i mean corbin but you know these are like long-term projects and i think yeah like you said allison when you're talking about part of the project being to break down social bonds and like literally to rewire your brain like yeah I mean education is going to be pivotal to that like it's not going to be <laughs> what it sounds like or what people are are hearing like I think they're just hearing what they want to hear yeah yeah I mean I, it's listening to this um has sort of forced me to kind of go through my own um, progression as a socialist. Um, I mean, I was in an organization that would have, in two, at least in 2010, and I was part of it, would have said to vote for a person like this. You know, it's not enough. It's not a revolution, but at least it's going to help people. You know, um, I at least later came to the conclusion of, no, this is not going to help people. It's a distraction or it's a deflection or even called it a lie. You know, I would have called it a lie and just said, I don't believe this person. I, he might call, claim himself a socialist. He's Bernie Sanders. He's Jeremy Corbyn. He's there to sell be, behind him. He's there to sell on another product and he's just lying. But now I, I see it differently. I, I actually think he's telling the truth. Like I actually sit, think he's actually calling out the, 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 the structure that he's, that is going to be used to strangle us. Like, and it, it listens, I, it's, and this is largely a result, Allison, of, your work and Jake and the last two years have allowed me now to understand, and this is something that me and Eduardo and Kenny have talked about, because Eduardo has talked about those people who, who are just kind of holding things at bay before the whole thing snaps shut, keeping that little forest, forest alive before the whole thing snaps shut. And now it's just clear to me that, that there's no, these people are not trying to slow anything down. They are accelerating the process Mm -hmm. of the prison being constructed for all of us. And they are literally just maybe at best you can say pretty words, but really what they are, they are selling the project of imperialism, of, co of colonization, of attack on workers. And it, 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 so the reason I say that is because I think all those people who were tweeting that out, I was caught the only 
10 years ago, I would have been like, okay, I'm not, this is not fully my thing, but can we be against such a thing? Don't we want to like deal with poverty? Okay. We got to do something, you know, maybe that's going to go in the direction of, of some kind of change. And it's not the direction Corbyn is laying out there. If you're a socialist, is literally the opposite of the direction that anybody who wants change has to go in. You have to fight that guy. You have to take that guy's program down and, and dismantle it to, and to, to actually liberate because everything he's talking about there, education, government, programs or whatever, are, are being put in there to trap people and to build a bigger, a bigger trap for all of us. Um, particularly now that we talk about Mexico as a, um, as a laboratory. He's, he's fucking part of the experiment, you know, mm-hmm. and, oh, anyway, so it, I understand, I understand, I've been there, that's what I'm going to say, so I can't just say, oh, and, and if you'd have tweeted that, if, if, if you'd have tweeted that out to me 10 years ago, Allison, I'd have been like, oh, no, no. I would have, I would have <laughs> not listened to you and have been one of the, one of your haters, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, we, we are going to have to figure this out because they, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, but it's, I've had my own transformation that hopefully more people will see that there is no half measures. Now it's either, it's going to be all or nothing on both ways. We are either all going to be in what you would call the global brain, you know, um, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fight. We're going to stop that and and do something that's human. There's not an in-between ground. Thank you, Alison, for mentioning that train, by the way, Maya train that's going to be crossing the rainforest and the archaeological sites in Mexico, because I, I mean, there's so much, I'm inundated with information that I, I don't always talk about other things. And this is one of those things that I just like realized, Jesus, the stuff that they are trying to do in the project they're trying to do in Mexico and the South, I just put a link on the chat. And it's amazing where this train will be cutting through indigenous lands and also rainforests. And this is all under neoliberal and capitalist ventures know that people are trying to promote this as something that's going to be great for the people and for mexican people and for jobs and under the name of also trying to help people with education and for nature and whatever and yet it's going to cut through and scar the south of mexico just right through it's like four different five different states and they have phase one and phase two and if anyone wants to look online they can just see the map where it's going to be cutting through a lot of indigenous populations land. I mean, they don't consider it lands. They just live there. People live. It's not like here where they have reservations, uh, which is, I think, what the, the next phase of Mexico is going right. to be considered. Right. So anyhow, I don't want to. I'll just share a link in, for, in the episode notes for people to look into. But anyhow, I agree with everything that well, I was- said as well. I mean, and I think I might have mentioned this last time, but I am interested in the fact that um, archaeologically, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a lot of interest in in the Yucatan and Central America in terms of its own history, like its its early archaeology in the 50s and like resort tourism related to that. And they have a big temple, like they have a number of temples down there in Merida, I think, which is like the first the first Catholic cathedral in North America or in the Americas that was built on a Mayan ruin. And then there's a, like a few blocks away is the, the LDS temple and there's a lot of resort stuff there. So given that at least I know in the U S that the, the church is very, I mean, um, 
it's many faith institutions, but the LDS church, I think because of its resources is very much aligned with impact investing. I would also just keep an eye on like how that overlaps with what's happening in the Southern part of Mexico, because they have like cultural interests there <laughs> um, in terms of the story, their narrative arc story and their sort of history of tourism and resort development and impact investing. So um, I can imagine there would be some overlap. Again, like, I mean, I think this speaks a little bit to what Eduardo was saying earlier of all these outsiders coming down into Mexico and like making themselves at home. Because again, within this eugenics construct of like managing women and children into a certain model, it is grounded in this early 20th century, like fitter families, better babies. Like what, what do we ultimately want the babies to be like? Well, we'd like for them to be like the perfect, you know, white blonde baby of the Panama Canal Zone, but maybe we're not going to get there, but we're going to engineer it. And increasingly, as we have our whole like, you know, genetically modified food systems, right? And our, our health interventions that we're going to like require people to get assistance to eat. Like, I, I think that the, the level of eugenics cannot be underestimated. And I, I mentioned last time about Dominic Cummings, who was the advisor to Boris Johnson, that he literally straight up talks about eugenics on his blog, like educating children according to their genomic profile. And when he was called out about his new sort of DARPA-like project by a, um, a Black female politician about eugenics, like, do you think eugenics is a science and should we be putting resources into it? And he just dodged saying like, I don't know what you mean by eugenics, but synthetic biology is really great and we totally need it. Right. And so now I really do think that the whole synthetic biology paradigm has, has shifted over and no one will call it eugenics, even though that that's literally what it is. And the clip that I have on my YouTube website from David Rue, like he's saying that, that they are in a position of changing the human germline by doing some sort of crazy Gattaca-like essentially breeding program for humans where they're adapting genetic material like in Petri dishes. Like they're literally talking about sort of this post, like, like a managed genetic population. And he's like on the board of this Jackson Labs, which, you know, is a eugenics-based program dating to the 30s. Like they don't call it eugenics anymore, but it's a one of these primary mouse research lab programs out, up in Maine. So these are things like we should all actually be talking about eugenics and imperialism and what the implications are for these behavioral condition payments. But I don't really see that happening. And unfortunately, like in many of the narratives out there, they like around the resistance, I think there's still like racial undertones. I mean, mostly sort of anti-China and different things, but it's, it's a problem, I think. And I'm not saying this just to be like politically correct or woke. I'm saying it because this is actually a central part of the story and we seem unable to incorporate it. Like not we, but broadly, it's not a major part of the story at this point. So. Yeah. I have one question and maybe what's, what's the difference between people who talk about racism and racial injustice and people who talk about eugenics like are are those the same is that the same discussion how's that discussion different i mean i'm i mean are you finding that many people in the resistance space like talking about racism 
Well, no, I mean, that's why I'm, like, I that's what I'm saying. I guess that's my point. Like in the world that I'm mostly occupying now, like I'm not finding that in the, it tends to be flags, patriots, right. But anti, but, like that, the, the prevailing narrative is that someone's from the outside is coming and doing this to us. And they, you know, and I don't find that the global South or like the fact of the history of structural adjustment or the economic stuff that's been happening for decades, right. In other countries, now it's coming home to roost, but we don't seem to acknowledge what we did before. And then I would say that within, well, I don't know. I mean, that, and then weirdly, like the people who would normally, I would expect talk about structural racism and the economic <laughs> implications of that seem totally alienated from understanding bodily autonomy. <laughs> Well, so I, mean, I feel like I'm standing in the breach going, hey, guys, like, come on. <laughs> and I would say that on, in all honesty, for coming up on the left, while we might have talked, we do talk about racism and, so, and, the, and, and things like that. We actually don't really use terms like eugenics. We kind of that's a term that we, we associate with libertarians and we, the people who we often say are unconcerned about racism. I am kind of confused why people who spend so much time talking about eugenics don't actually see that what they're talking about is racism. But at the same time, I, I wonder if I, there's some sort of confusion I have that you, uh, you the discussion of eugenics is not the same discussion as those who talk about institutional racism or imperialist rate, like col colonialism or anything like that. I don't know. I mean, well, see, the thing that I've started to realize is that I think actually there's a fair amount of the wellness community that also fits into eugenics, right? Like if do you want to be healthy, you have to do all these things. This is my regimen. Like if you're not doing this and you're sick, it's because you're a bad person, right? Like, you know, there, there is a certain amount in the alternative, like holistic stuff that's like, I've got all of these regimes and good people do all these things, Right good people make all these good choices like I make. And so there is this weird, like, so this map is part of my giant map that I've been working on and it's with the Kellogg Foundation. And I knew that the Kellogg Foundation was connected to UBI pilot in Jackson, Mississippi. And so like, I'm looking into the, the John Harvey Kellogg and he was, you know, the cornflakes guy, right? But he was a vegetarian and he created this sanitarium at Battle Creek, Michigan. And this, what I didn't realize was that it actually was all informed by Seventh-day Adventist. So he was, he and his brother were practicing Seventh-day Adventist and that's like vegetarianism and various other things, which is another like initially upstate New York, sec, you know, spiritual awakening, like the LDS church kind of similar era. And then they moved to Michigan, but they were into like cleaning your bowels and doing hydrotherapy and doing all of these treatments of which like the cornflakes and the processed cereal were part of it. But at the same time, he was part like they hosted the Race Betterment Foundation eugenics program. You know, he was part of this good health journal promoting soil, soy based food. Um, they were, they were, the race betterment foundation was sponsoring fitter families programs. Um, so like he was part of this life extension Institute, which is again, like healthier living, longer living through soy. Um, but with this very direct connection to like the eugenics records office. And so when you see all of this laid out and historically speaking, what's interesting is this sanitarium in battle Creek eventually turned into, um, 
an army hospital, like one of the largest army hospitals in World War II, like 11,000 patients, huge. And then eventually was converted to uh, general service administration use for the defense logistics program. So like, to me, that's quite an interesting trajectory from this Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian sanitarium of racial betterment to like the defense logistics hub of Michigan. But, you know, that's how it goes. So you see the layout. And so John Harvey, who, who like he and his brother, Will Keith, they created the sanitarium and the cereal, but they had some falling out. The Kellogg Foundation was actually through his brother, Will Keith. Um, he started it in 1930, but literally they're doing a universal basic income pilot in New Mexico, and they're doing um, agricultural innovation in the Yucatan and Chiapas, right? So like the eugenicists, the vegetarian soy eugenicists are going to like be involved in some nutrition, sovereign food sovereignty movement in Southern Mexico, which we were just talking about. And additionally, one of their other grants was digitizing the Mayan language. So like, I don't think you can disconnect the stuff they're doing now to the stuff they were doing back then. They're, it's, it's, it's not disconnected. It's not like they force war their bad past history. It's just the newest iteration, but it's going to be framed in a paternalistic, like, we really care about your language. So we want to help you document it and feed it to the global brain. So I think that what you just said in, um, brings, brings up uh, John Kleisig, Lipson, to also your question about that confusion, because I do see overlaps, you know, people who, um, Want to fight or claim to fight, uh, you know, racism, imperialism, but also are for all this technology, all this, you know, measuring, all this data, all this nudging of people in order to improve uh, people, improve society. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, it's not, it's, I think that's what John uh, said, I think. Um, you know, again, people can go back to one of those episodes, but he said that it, it's been reframed as not selecting, you know, the best of the species. But it's, it's, it's been reframed as improving the species as a whole and people in society. Yeah. And, and so that's what's happening. That's why I do see overlaps of people who, again, are anti-imperialism, but have no problem with the, this, uh, you know, new to, uh, you know, mRNA vaccine, you know, and, and actually right. it's about saving people. And, and so I, I also, in nonprofits, you know, a lot of these programs that you describe sound familiar, you know, here in San Francisco. You know, yeah. the, in, to some iteration, maybe they don't have the technological implementation yet, but the, the conceptual, you know, framework, it's there, you know, where yeah. people are asked something, you know, or, or are nudging a direction to improve their life because someone is choosing for them, you know, and, and I just suspect that the technologies and even the Obama phones, you know, I talked to my partner, she works in the most marginalized, neglected community in San Francisco. And Obama phones are just everywhere. You know, the, the people need those phones to function because they have to communicate with the nonprofits that own their lives yeah. and their ability to access some sort of crime. Yeah, that's so exactly it. So it really exists in that. And, and it's not like, again, the technology is advancing. The concept is there and the willingness of good, uh, you know, in, well-intentioned, I guess, people, a liberal progressive type is there and there's no questioning of technology. You know, it's just more and more you know, um, even us, like, I think there's no even, not even questions that we can use Google Sheets, you know, in, in, you know, all the Google products, 
Yeah. Well, like, even though we're fighting smart sheets, I know. we are using all this stuff. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. It's pervasive. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. My point is that it's already part of the culture of accepting all this technology as a means to save and improve, you know, and, and do better or even fight the system. You know, like. Yeah. I know. Oh, I do want to point out one other person on this thing. His name is Irving Fisher. And he was the first president of the American Eugenics Society and part of this Life Extension Institute. Because again, a lot of this is anti-aging, improve the quality of your life. He was an econometrician. So his focus was like labor theory and eugenics and utility theory. So a lot of this is efficiency, right? Like um, when, I, when I was looking at one of the people who was involved at General Electric in alternating current, the Steinmetz guy, I think was his name, but he was a technocrat and he was like, capitalism is super inefficient. We're going to make so efficient socialism. It's going to be super efficient. And so if you're going to make it efficient, then all of the people have to pull their weight and be good and be healthy and do the right thing, right? That's the efficiency thing. Like you, everybody's got to get with a program for the collective good. You've got to self-improve. And so there's this, you know, and it's, it's a cybernetic impetus. It's not something that people have come to as like a cultural norm that they've decided. It's been imposed by like an engineer. Like we've decided to engineer society, not that individuals collectively have decided how to like govern each other, like, you know, govern their communities. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a social network. Really. Do so. you um, know when that quote came about? The one where you said, uh, capitalism is inefficient. We we need a socialist system for efficiency. Oh, I'll have to look. I mean, I think it was probably in the 30s. Right, because I, I he, think, he had joined the technocrats, like the right. Howard think, Scott at Columbia. What the reason I ask is because that I thought it would be around the, the 30s or 40s because the whole claim to fame around people who were supporting the Soviet Union and Stalinism at that time was the fact that they that the Soviet Union at that time was not seen as having its depression, the, 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 the stock market crash, the, 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 the claim for many socialists that, okay, Stalin's got some problems like that, but look, they're able to feed their people, they're able to do this, was on the basis of the, the belief that somehow, what I would describe as their state capitalist system or whatever, this, this new state socialism was somehow a superior system to, um, to existing uh, capitalism. And the same echoes are coming up as people talk about the Chinese system versus the US system as state, as government uh, and states connected more deeply to their corporate institutions as they are in China are seen as like, you know, as I think the US state looks almost jealously at the ability of China to kind of like do that and trying to figure out how they confuse public and private more um uh more 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 deeply and more across the board definitely yeah um okay so th this is just a, a slide it just shows that kellogg is in mexico working in micro regions and again the southern part in chiapas and yucatan i think looks like that 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 little stick is like probably near the, the cathedral in Merida <laughs> where the first social impact conference happened actually, evidently. Um, so yeah, so that, that's all that is. And um, if we click forward, 
Uh, yeah, again, some of the, if, if you want to look back at this later, people who are more familiar, but these are the communities that Kellogg is operating in. And again, these are people who are were at the time connected to the American, you know, eugenics society. And we can keep going, uh, just click through. Um, so this is just some of the um, grants, right? But to promote the revitalization of the Mayan language uh, through the a linguistic corpus. So I think, again, that there's a certain amount of ownership there that they're looking to, because I do think that there's quite a bit of sentiment analysis and worldview that they want to digitize. Um, We've got like improving healthcare access in Chiapas through a program around training community leaders as health promoters and referrals to public health system, which again, sure, you want people to have access to care when they need it. But if it's if it's something that's really a managed system that's managing them towards posthumanism, there's questions. And the last one is, is maternal health, which is, again, a huge area and it's not inaccurate to say that there are really extreme health disparities for low-income women and black and brown women like within the healthcare system. The question is, do you trust the system itself to self-rectify within how they treat pregnancies and other things? You know, and my, my sense is a lot of it will be burdens placed on women to behave better, like within the existing system rather than to actually fix the system that's broken. So, I don't know, but maybe this is now because Jessica's part of the show and she's really getting me to see these things. But every now, every time now I see improving maternal health, I just say that that's the opposite of what's happening. Like it just, and and again, like Jessica pointed this out and it came up in that episode we had with from Luminary Village. Controlling women who are giving birth seems to be a really important thing for the system. And like th that was, that one really stuck out to me. Yeah. And they're going to make it sound great, like midwifery training. But again, they probably want to create credentialed programs that all of the people who might be the outliers, like the, the birth assistants and things, have to be properly credentialed on blockchain, right? Uh, to make sure they're the good kind, right? And then the whole system gets pulled in. It's the same like when I talk to people about the homeschooling. Like their goal is to get, you know, through there by offering, um, vouchers, assistance, support to get into every crevice, everything that might be beyond the enclosure to like incorporate that into the Borg hive mind. I mean, by, by strengthening the skills and knowledge of traditional, but these people don't have any knowledge about the, the skills and the knowledge of the traditional midwives. They're coming from a completely different set. They, they're just basically, it's like they can only do anything but de-skill them and say, you got to do our thing. It's, it seems the opposite. And I mean, I don't want to go like too far down this rabbit hole, but when they say midwife, like they probably don't even mean the same thing as midwife in like an indigenous or, um, you know, more traditional role. Like we see that just broadly, like midwives in the U.S. and anywhere where there's like centralized healthcare and, um, they're basically state operatives. Like it doesn't, the word doesn't mean what it, you know, did several hundred years ago. And it's only $80,000, that's not even that much money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what are you gonna do for $80,000, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, there you go. 
Okay. So, um, okay. So I mentioned the first impact investing conference in Mexico was in 20, I can't tell if it's 15 or 16, looks like 15. So there's Ronnie, there's Ronald Cohen, the father of social impact finance, um, Harvard MBA in London helped start up the Israel as the startup nation and now Israel as the Tikkun Olam impact nation. Um, and so it was in um, Merida, 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 Mexico uh, was where it was held. And, um, you know, there, I've, I've, sp I've written a number of times that there have been multiple Vatican impact investing conferences. Uh, the first one was in 2014. And they, they talk, you know, here's the Pope, you know, so in addition to there's LDS church, uh, or the cathedral is there and the, no, the LDS temple and then the Catholic cathedral are both in Merida. But the, the Pope is saying, um, uh, it is urgent that governments throughout the world commit themselves to developing an international framework capable of promoting a market of high impact investments and thus combating an economy that excludes and discards. So doesn't that sound charitable? <laughs> well, again, just opposite world. Like, the very system, and I'm thinking again about my situation as SFUSD, the very thing they said about their smart sheets thing was that we are attempting to build this broader, they didn't call it an international framework, but they called it a statewide framework. And because of that, we can't, we can't oblige you, their, your paper version. So therefore, we are going to both exclude and discard you. So the very process of building an international framework means people have to be excluded and discarded in order to do that. Yep. Quality control, <laughs> compliance control, compliance oh. control. Uh, what was that yeah. chooser, the, 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 the great chooser, going back to your first quotes, what was that darn thing that was quoted about? Your first slide. Superior. The superior, the superior chooser. Yeah, they've chosen. If you don't go along, you're discarded. Well, and I will say too, here's the quote from Cohen. Just can we just go back one quick yeah. sec? So it says, what we're doing is going to change financial markets. It's going to begin to allocate resources, not on the basis of just risk and return, but on risk, return and impact. And that's for Ronald Cohen. So again, I think what the left like doesn't want to understand is that the nature of the markets are changing, but they're changing because the players have decided it's time to change the market. And the, the impact piece is the data surveillance piece. So now not only are we going to create these markets, but we are going to create um, evidence-based what works uh, government of public privatized public services that allow us to call it impact, but really what it is, is global data surveillance of vulnerable communities. And that's, that's what impact really is. So, um, yeah, this is just one, like, this is like, you don't comply, bad things happen, right? Like, and, like the compo the nutrition energy component, right? Like they don't call it food, right? Cause it's going to be your pellets. Like literally it feels like you're like these poor animals in a lab, right? Your nutrition, you have not fulfilled your nutrition energy requirement. Um, the education is part of it. Um, like if you don't attend school and, you know, I mentioned last time that Bloomberg, you know, brought that to New York and people are like, what, why are you bringing this stuff from Mexico up here to New York? We're not the same thing. And it's like, no, man, you're the same thing. Like that's what's coming. And then the elderly, so the elderly are, are, are targets too. So like if, if you don't go to your health appointment and you're an older person, they're just going to drop you off the rolls. So the compliance in Mexico is like, they're in the hard line. 
Okay. Um, and here's the key. So it says should and do evolve. So when we're talking like soft and hard benefits or unconditional cash transfers and cash transfers, like they're anticipating that as you can, like your, your program is more established that you can start with unconditional money and then go to conditional. Like they just, uh, this is a world bank straight up saying they're like, offer them the free money first. And then once you get them situated with the free money, then you can move on to the conditional money, right? And then you can start with the soft conditions and then you move to the hard conditions. And like, this is the, the how-to book of how you're doing it, right? And then you need the unified registry. So that's the so the, the, the registry structure, the, the data analytics, the infrastructure that's required, the spinal cord of the program. So again, we know all these things. I just wanted, they just put it in writing. They just tell you it's not hidden. We're trying to improve people's lives. So, you know, why would they hide it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like that is pretty, that's pretty blunt. Yeah, they just, you know, hey man. <laughs> but I guess when you just see UCTs, go to CCTs. It doesn't look so bad. It doesn't look so bad, right? Yeah, it's all programmable. So again, I, you know, I've talked before, and this was part of my whole discussion about, um, you know, my issue with digital child labor and Derek Rose and online learning and gamified learning and education is that they really want to put all of education on blockchain. Um, the World Bank is central to this. They're going to call it a learning economy because the intention is literally that the next phase of globalization of remote tele like platform labor and remote robotic work is going to automate many, many people out of jobs. And um, so there will be people who their only job will probably be to learn things and train the AI and that you will get and interact with digital content and, and feed your emotion into the machine. Like that's part of the social emotional learning. So, you know, they're planning for it and, Again, like I, I, I do feel really strongly that they want the global South to build this metaverse, both from like a low wage standpoint, from um, a social impact standpoint, and from the standpoint of communities that still have a more direct like connection to their culture and land to sever that connection further and to create that inversion, like particularly black and brown women. Like that's, I feel like those are going to be big, big targets for all of those reasons to build this new empire and call it gender equity, right? So. Um, Oh, so this is the food assistance pilot, Eduardo. I, I forgot I included some, some things. So the CELO research pilot, they actually created a test lab. And the important thing to know with women and children is they've developed something called a two-generation program. So why have one impact market when you can have double? So what they want to do is they want to get data analytics on the children and the mother and say, oh, if we improve the mother, we can also improve the child and we can track them both and we can double dip on our impact. So they will create scenarios where they need to put women into like train them for jobs, like to build the metaverse and then put their kids in franchise childcare and get the data analytics off of them there too. And again, I, I'm not trying like, like I was, I, I consider myself like a pretty progressive person. I'm not here to say like, I don't want women to have fulfilling careers or to be able to like that I need them home and pregnant or anything like that. 
But at the same time, we don't value women's work. Like we don't value what, like the cost of social reproduction. And that's what Silvia Federici is so excellent at unpacking, you know, among others is that there is like capitalism makes its profit off of the unwaged work of people in the home. And then if you can remove children out of the home and put them in childcare and put women to work, like you actually create new profit centers. And so that a lot of that, um, you know, welfare support to get women into work and women and children into childcare is benefiting the data economy in both ways. So in this, they created, um, it was like a, a community assistance program um, let's see, a CELA wallet. So they got a digital wallet with a bit of money that they can earn things. You could get a meal, a drink, a haircut, or a manicure by paying with a QR code. Now this is in Mexico, right? And they've put these women in a boot camp to learn how to be web developers. So we can keep going. Although these women don't look that low. I mean, no, not appearances aren't everything, but they look pretty hip. So I don't know. You want to keep going. So they, this was in Mexico city and they had a test bed to see how this would all work. Cause all of this is about developing small scale prototypes, right? Like move, move fast and break things. That's what they do. So um, what they did was they were paying people in script with QR codes and having them work at like do training in these laboratories. And then they were tracking their interactions, their financial interactions. And from their financial behaviors with these digital wallets, they created mental models of the participants. And all of it was, was translated into the app. Right. So it's it's financial tractions, it's QR codes, it's apps, it's framed as in women empowerment in the tech industry. And this is all happening in Mexico City. Sorry, Allison, what what do they mean by mental models? Well, so essentially it's like this digital twinning, like you have a ledger, and so every transaction that you make, um, shows your decision tree. Like, did you get the manicure or did you buy the drink? Like did, what time of day? Like it's all of the metadata that's attached. And so like the financial behaviors, I don't really know how much mental model they could build because I don't think they put a ton into these people's wallets and they just track them for a few weeks. But they use the technology to mirror their, like their values essentially as shown by what they chose to buy. Like they couldn't buy all the things with the wallet. Like the wallet was programmed so they couldn't get anything they wanted. There was a limited selection of choices. And then among those choices, like which women picked which things, right? And they probably correlated it maybe to their training program as well. And so that's what the big data analytics, like for me, that's why the blockchain is so central. It's not there's unstructured data that's floating around all over everywhere about us all the time. And that's not great, but the power is where they have a centralized node and they can make it relational, right? Like you came into the boot camp and you did X number of modules on Wednesday and then you got a drink or then you, you know, or you, you didn't come in that day, but you got a haircut and they, they start making these maps of who you are based on how you transact with the world. And some of it is going to be money, but I think increasingly, as we were talking about the, like this idea of having a, a transit pass where you could maybe accrue script for being a good citizen, like some of it isn't actually even going to be what we understand as money anymore. And so really the things that you value and the work you're willing to do for things and how you represent yourself is going to be mirrored through the blockchain system. It's part of how they build out the twins. So, I mean, the thing for me on the mental model that was really a crux was when 
I realized that Carnegie Mellon University, that the personalized education systems, like the online learning person, like where they deliver you the next item based on what you did in the past, these AI models were actually based on creating a cognitive model of every student. Literally like a, in a real time developing granular model of how your mind works so that the AI could tell you the next thing that you needed to know. And most of this stuff was related to math curriculum, but they're like, okay, so here's the next thing. But the, the, the trick is within cybernetics is what are they engineering your mind to be? You didn't program the end result of what you wanted out of the program. Like the personalized learning program is programming you as much as you're programming it. But it's all predicated on the fact that they can digitally represent the aggregation of all your thought processes up to that point and how you've interacted with the platform. And then with Clever and the QR codes, how you've interacted with multiple platforms. And the AI will like correlate all of this data as a visualization to go, ta-da, now you need to learn this next item. Here we've chosen from our you know, portfolio of content this will enlighten you further next. And it's really not that different than, you know, like the Netflix analytics or YouTube analytics, like they're already doing it. So, but all of it is based on this idea that there is a digital representation of you somewhere that the AI is drawing on to decide what, how to, how to shape you. It's, it's like a, it's a, again, it's cybernetics, like you're shaping it and it's shaping you. And then who's actually driving the train. This is why I think it's a good idea to share passwords for accounts. So, you know, (laughs) algorithms. So they think that you have multiple personalities. (laughs) I would say anybody who hasn't read the book Feed, M.T. Anderson's book Feed, it's it's a young adult novel, but it's quite fascinating. It's sort of essentially it's this near future dystopia of client, you know, whatever, but the protagonist is a homeschool girl and her father studies dead languages, but they're all like computer coding languages. And so she goes and like, it's all based on your shopping, like your identity and your feed, like, but she goes and intentionally messes with all of her stuff. Like, so they, the, the, the feed can't identify, like slot her into any category. And then at some point she has a health like a serious health thing and she can't get any insurance because it doesn't know how to identify her. Like she's confused it too much. And then the back end is that like, eventually she dies because she can't like get health care because it doesn't know how to, it doesn't have a mental, like a coherent mental model. I know for example, that there are jobs now that like that check your social media, your presence. And like, I, I basically like, one is just politics, you know, on Instagram and posts. And then like, but by and large, I mean, obviously I have a presence online, you know, through other people because I even appear on pictures that I didn't know I was in, but the <laughs> algorithms from Facebook are telling me I was in the picture. Um, so there's still a presence, right? But my point is that um, that it's, it's already happening. You know, that I, I've known of jobs who like will check on your, on, on someone's social media to see who they are. You know, and if you don't have a social media, like even among people, like I've seen it where like they think you're weird and you're like not trustworthy because you're not open. You know, at least that, oh, that it gets you damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? <laughs> Imagine if I ever try to go back to work. Oh my gosh! But I think that what Allison you're getting at is while while it might just look like surveillance collecting data on you, you're also talking about a process 
of building something. Um, it's not just about collecting data, but it's feeding that data to a, to a thing that's itself being shaped and changed by that, which will then come back and attempt to shape and change you in the question you're posing, which I think you're being um, generous when you pose the question of who's, who's changing who. It, it, we're, we're talking about surveillance and data that's being utilized for the idea of building this thing that is actually, um, that is there to control us. So it's, it is, so it's not just a, a question of where, what social media stuff do I have out there, but literally the very, they're building an apparatus that who's, where I feed it by, by acting and by doing things within it. And that this thing that I'm feeding itself grows and changes uh, to become a pen, I, I imagine better at figuring out how to nudge me or control me or direct me for whatever aim is behind the thing that is building that it that that it set up the architecture for this AI thing. Yeah. And to do it in a very subtle way so that you don't rebel against it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes you like want to want to participate. Oh, this is a good one. Can we play this one? Yeah. So this is about sort of swarm intelligence and us as agents, this idea of people and their digital twins as, as agents in social networks. The models themselves, they kind of showed that they were incomplete. So computer simulation then was possibly an alternative. But for the computer simulations, you also have to make a model. That means you make, have to make a simplification. Now, the great innovation for me of this domain of complex adaptive systems. I prefer to use that term rather than complexity science because in complexity science, different people tend to look at different aspects and some people will speak about uh, chaos theory as complexity science. Well, chaos theory is not really complexity science in my view. So complex adaptive systems, the greatest insight for me was that we can model things by having these agents. Agents are kind of little bits of program that are programmed with what is called a condition action rule. In this condition, the agent does that. In this condition, it does something else. And now you just throw a whole bunch of agents together. Each agent perceives some condition, performs an action. That action changes the conditions, not only for itself, but for all the other agents. So you now get all these kind of direct and indirect interactions between the agents, and that leads you to all kind of very interesting results. I already gave the examples of ecosystems in economics, of course, where the agents that are people who buy and sell things, depending on what one agent sells, another one may buy, prices may increase, and you may have all these kind of nonlinear effects on the stock exchange. That in say is a very interesting paradigm that illuminates a lot. But of course, it depends on what do you choose as your elements? What are your agents? And what do you program your agents to do? And what people typically do is they have some kind of a simplistic view of what the system is. They program the agents. They see that maybe the simulation doesn't do what they want. So they they play a little bit with the rules until they get something that looks nice. And then they say, well, look, we have proven that this and this will happen. But actually, they have just proven that this simulation of these agents with these rules does that thing.
Yeah. So I know it's a little hard to understand him because he's, I think he's Belgian and the, the connection was a little choppy, but just to clarify, so this, this idea of sort of individual operating agents and programming and conditions and how that like that you can program if this happens, then this happens. And then you have individuals that are programmed to do things. And then the decisions that an individual makes affects the next individual over affects the next individual, like collectively. And so they model these simulations for like modeling economies or modeling disasters or modeling other things. It's, it's, it's based on the idea of like, it's called stigmergy, I think, like ants and termites that you start with sort of disorganized behaviors and then, and then it becomes more organized. But I guess within the context of what we were just talking about and programmable money, he's talking about agents and what do you program them to do? And again, that's improvement pathways. That's where you're telling pregnant women or women with young children or the children, we're going to program you to do these things to make you a better human being for society. And then, and then we're going to find what are the things that we can do to make, to enforce those behaviors and some of that to incentivize and enforce. And then you know, for him, he's talking about running simulations and seeing what happens and then tweaking. But I do think that as you have all of the transactions mirrored, you could do a test case like they did in Mexico, only like now they have the technology and run an experiment for six months and then say, oh, that didn't achieve what we wanted. So now how do we tweak the variables on the money or how do we tweak the variables on the educational curriculum or how do we tweak the variables on the medical evidence-based medical things we're giving people. And then let's run the simulation again. And, and then they're able to aggregate all of that data. So there's a certain amount of agency, but then not because literally society is being programmed to a certain end. And, and, you know, I think that people who are like doing managed economies and things that, I mean, if you're in that operating in that space, you know, that that's how they do it. But I think up until recently, they haven't had the capacity to control at such a granular level so many people. I don't know if that makes sense. Yep. Okay. So this is just talking about that they're going after both generations um, and they're separating women from young children and then getting the data off of both of them. Um, and then I actually, I have a friend uh, Lynn, who's running for a seat on the Dallas County Community College Board, and um, she's presenting tonight on, on Greenlight Credentials, which is a blockchain platform for transcripts for community college. And I would say in Texas, again, they're going after Latino kids in the Dallas school districts, in these Texas school districts as impact commodities. And also Greenlight, in addition to being used in their community college for tracking credits, now wants all sorts of like mental health data too. And so they're selling it to kids as like dual enrollment, community college, uh, get an associate for free, get a heads up on college, but it's going to come with a blockchain transcript and that increasingly this, this private company Greenlight is gonna overreach and want to get access to the student data. And within that program, the community college program, they're even going after the mothers of the students by saying, oh, did you not complete your degree? Look, you, you and your child can do this together. 
right? How you can have this family bonding experience and you can continue, you know, get your associates while your student is doing their associates. And isn't that great? And, you know, at first glance, it seems like nice, but once you realize they're creating both of those as impact markets and data collection scenarios to track people into planned economies, it doesn't feel so good anymore. And so this, these are some of the donors to that boot camp in Mexico City, right? You could just imagine the charitable intentions of all of these groups, right? <laughs> I mean, Google, Cisco, IBM, JP Morgan City, right? Yeah, I mean, just if you go back, I'm not going to go back to that picture because it was. I looked at that picture of those young people of color. They're smiling. They look pleasant enough. You know, I think back to those old 20s things that showed like big fat, you know, guys with the monocle spectacle and, and tentacles coming across the planet, you know, like that version of the monopoly capitalists, like th those are the, f that, those are the faces they used to sell it. But you, if you, if you strip that away and you put, look behind it, here they are, you know, BlackRock yeah. and Google and JP Morgan. And it's, it's really, they've, it's very slick, I have to say. It is slick. And look, graduates, 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 we're all about graduates, right? Because it's completion, only we know that ultimately it's going to be lifelong learning on the blockchain. So <laughs> I don't know what the graduate, what they're talking about. When you get to graduate, when you're 87, you know, like they unhook you from the Borg, you know? So, okay, we can... <laughs> Okay, so again, um, Ready Nation is central in going after the kids. Uh, they were doing an early childhood uh, program in Mexico <coughs> that was in Mexico City in 2019, and the FEMSA Foundation was behind it. And I think my understanding is FEMSA, is it maybe bottling, like soda bottling and um, gas stations? Does that ring a bell, Eduardo? I don't know. Did FEMSA, does that ring a bell, F-E-M-S-A? Um, I think it's it's related to soft drink bottling and and gas stations is the company, which like, of course, early childhood, right? That's who you would imagine funding it. And actually the presenting at this because Ready Nation was the ones that had the global summit in New York in 2018. I think that the person was who presented was connected to KPMG in Philadelphia, which is weird. So it's again, they're setting all of this up, um, you know, human capital, empresa familias, capital humano, right? And they're just, you know, but these are people who are going to put the kids on the blockchain and their moms and send their moms to boot camps. Okay. Uh, within this, I just want to touch on like the radio eugenics, like once the blockchain stuff is happening, they the competency-based education model, um, the, the Battelle, like the whole um, partnership for 21st century skills is connected to Battelle and they're actually doing the portrait of a graduate. And they're running Department of Energy Labs, guys. Like they're running these labs. Um, and so these are the people who are like doing the radioactive cyborg moonshot project who are involved in your, your child's human capital and reskilling them for the metaverse. We can click through. Um, you can keep going. We can do these kind of quick. So again, Dallas County Promise, helping students tell their story on the blockchain, right? And, you know, lot, you know, black and brown faces there fronting the Salesforce. You see you guys, all you Bay Area people, they're going to help. They're going to help the kids tell their story, right? We can keep going. Who, who is part of this economic mobility 
or Dallas, right? And again, like largely Latino population being targeted for this. You know, the big accounting firms, JP Morgan, again, Texas Instruments, the banks, United Way. So this is in everywhere. But as we have here, you know, you see like Mercado, some of the Latin American like media stations, those are going to be coming, right? It's it's a porous border for capital. They're, they're working both sides of it. We can keep going. I see commits up there. Yeah, so commit is central, like to strive together. It's sort of the facilitator. And Todd Williams was former Goldman Sachs, Boston Consulting Group. Yeah. And so you've got like, so here they're like, okay, so Prospera ended a tragedy, a tragedy. Yet now it's gone. The big question is why? Well, we know why. I mean, it's gone because the subsidy program is going to be undercut by free market investments in human capital. That's what's going to be set up. That's what Corbyn is coming in, right? And and I think Mexico is actually one of was in the first cohort of digital nations. And I don't know if how fast they're moving on digital identity in Mexico, but um, you know, it's it should be coming because literally they were in the first group. So once they get them on blockchain, then all of those people become investable commodities for global capital. Okay, we can keep going. Oh, can we just watch this one really quick? This is the one where they zap you. <laughs> when I go on online shopping, I don't feel like I'm spending any money. Well, the last two months, I had a phone bill for £340 each month. Contactless, smartphone, direct debits, standing orders. Money is virtually invisible for people today. We just thought about how can we make it much easier for people to not worry about their money, but still be in touch with it. We've created an Internet of Things banking platform that connects you to devices of your choice and helps you look after your money automatically. The world's first Internet of Things bank. Our platform allows you to set a spending limit in your bank account and it enables you to decide how you want to be notified when you pass that limit. Lots of devices now connect to the internet and we've got a platform that connects to anything on the internet of things. So for example, you may have heard of Pavlock. This is the device that helps you to change your habits, start spending money, maybe getting near to your threshold. Your Pavlock will vibrate, you'll get a notification on your phone. And then, if you breach that target or something else happens, it uses electric shocks. Oh, that's pretty <laughs> I mean, I'd strap it onto my brother tomorrow. He's a serial overspender. It's the equivalent to a slap, but you know, it's a zap. <laughs> if electric shocks aren't your thing, there are other options. You could use a Nest thermostat, for example. If you spend too much money, if you go below your threshold, and your heating comes down to whatever level you choose. Just one degree Celsius down on your thermostat over a year can save you 80 pounds. It could easily be the future of banking. The bank account basically taking care of itself. It will be life-changing for people. Last year, we bought the world the emoji passcode. This year, our focus is about saving people money. And this is just the start of a very exciting future. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. Crazy shit. <laughs> 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 nightmares. Oh my god. Oh, I wanted to I want to strangle these people. <laughs> okay, just... let's keep going. Let's cl we'll go click click fast and I'll talk fast. So, let's All see. Right. What do we got? Let's see. There we go. Okay. So, anyway, want to put people on blockchain. Maximus is one of the big providers. Let's keep we can go to the next one. 
um, you know, I've talked about the churches investing in people. So this is the Idaho Libertarian paper that talks about community care and, you know, investing in the poor. So it's not just the government. We can keep going. Um, in Mexico, I don't know if you've heard of him, um, Eduardo Arturo Rosenbluth. I mentioned him last time. He was the neurophysiologist, cardiologist in Mexico City, working with Norbert Wiener on cybernetics. And actually, quite he trained quite a few of the cyberneticists. Um, he was the lead lead guy. So he's an important figure in the cybernetics history of, for Mexico. Can keep going. Um, yeah, so they, they, they wrote this paper together, cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and the machine. And it's programming. And literally you can imagine the programming, like once you start to attach things like wearable technologies that shock you when you, when you do unapproved behaviors, right? That's pretty crazy. Okay, we can keep going ahead. Um, okay, so this is where Bloomberg brings it to New York the work rewards, conditional cash transfers. It was in March, 2007, so it was a while ago, right? So it goes both ways. They test it in Mexico and then they try it back out in the US and then it they shut it down fairly quickly, but but I, I it's not going away. It's it's going to be coming back, but it, it dates back to 2007. And he's the what works, you know, uh, mayor. Okay, we can keep going. Um, okay, so yeah, what Mexico can teach New York, you know, that it's all integrated, the World Bank, they pilot it, they move it around, um, you know, and so this is, again, the year after. They had a pretty short run in New York, but it will be part of this UBI, I'm sure. Okay, next. And okay, so now we've got to Oakland. And I think after this, we can we can just close up. But so they're talking about this guaranteed income pilot, all right, Oakland Resilient Families, and we can click through to the next one. Um, it's part of, it's being run by Up Together. And there's a, a larger national program called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. You can see there. So they're, they're, they want to have a guaranteed income. But up together is a big problem. And I'll show you that, why that is next. Let's see. So this is up together. So uh, uh, Mauricio Lim Miller, he was the founder. He, I think he went to Berkeley and was in tech and then decided to move into nonprofits. He was born in Arizona. It said his... Um, parents were from Mexico and he was raised by a single mother. Right. So that like, that's his story. All right. So let's keep going. He's going to help the working poor reinventing society. So up together, I know about this because I wrote about it in Philadelphia um, a while ago. And this, these images actually have fallen off of their website, but I have the screenshots. It talks about that through up together this is like the working poor doing things for the poor who are good, the good poor, that they will, families will log in online journals monthly to input information about income, savings, health, education, skills, housing, leadership, and connections. Because when families quantify their habits on a regular basis, they gain a view into their progress and achievement. We analyze and report back to families the changes in their personal data through online dashboards and personalized quarterly reports, which create a feedback loop that will be used by these um, FII families. And this is the same program that they're using in, in um, Oakland. By tracking their progress, they can, can take control of their success. So this is cyber, like there is no reason why you should have poor people like tracking all of this data on themselves, but this is really specifically for the program. Related to hustle scores. So this is the this up together software platform. You can take control of your success and this, yeah, hustle score. 
I mean, that's shocking, literally, by tracking progress, your well-being through data and stories about their lives. Like they actually, and this is this is my conjecture, is that in the global brain process, they want the data of like low income or like marginal, like working class marginalized people, because those people have to be really creative about how to get shit done. Like you actually have to, you know, people who are pretty comfortable are much less creative about like making stuff work than people who are always constantly like, how do I put this together? How do I get the support I need? How do I manage my childcare? How do I do all these things? And that's like, those decision trees are probably complex and really useful to the data set. And that's why I think they want this. I mean, it's speculation on my part, but to me, if I were an evil genius. Like that's how I'd be like, oh yeah, I want those guys. They seem to know, like, you know, they never get ahead, but they keep trying. Right. So that's the model for robotics development for uh, the, the machine, the auto factories in terms of the workers that they looked and the, the ones who basically were able to be the most efficient as they sped and sped and sped things up. And then you look at their motions and you try to simulate those motions um, with a robot. So they tried to figure out what, well, who were the people who survived under the harshest efficiency product, productive processes as they kind of like change things to like push, push harder. And then what were the actions with their hands they took or what, what did they do? How, what mechanisms did they, like what steps did they take? And then they tried to see what of the, of those steps, what could they mechanize? Yeah. That's the so, same thing here. Yeah. It, it I don't know how many. It just makes me think also, I think I read somewhere where like in plantations, they used to whip the hardest work, like the better workers to serve as an example for the rest. And it makes me think of that sapper and, you know, this technology and habits and, you know, the choosers who choose the good workers and reward the good people, you know, and whether it's AI or people. So whether it's AI or people, it's just a scary thought, you know, that... Um, you know, that I will be compared to someone else too, right? And, and, and just before that, um, something, you were talking about that guy that went to Berkeley who created that, um, was in, the, in tech and then went to nonprofit. Just the fact, how do they get away with the audacity of, of saying that people need to be more frugal or better manage their money? Because to me, this is this is not about you know managing crumbs again. This is about theft and and and, and how everyone is just you know robs and 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 putting conditions that are just horrible uh, to make choices that are horrible. And so like this 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 is a line of thought that is just prevalent on the left that people just need to be more educated into this system you know to participate in this system and just like you said. You know, my mother is a classic example of that. You know, she can make a banquet, you know, out of nothing, you know, and, and people want to come and give her lessons on being yeah. efficient or, or, or give her lessons of being um, more ecological and more, you know, environmentally friendly. When like my mother and, and other people like her, you know, are, are not very wasteful because they grew up with nothing and they're used to taking care of all that stuff. You know, so it's, it's just to me, just that premise, that arrogance of people who are educated and want to educate the brutes, but educate, you know, just entice them into this system. It, that alone pisses me off, you know, on, on top of, you know, the exploitation and how it's connected to these systems of capital 
just the audacity to try to educate people. I just, I just, I've had enough of that. Yeah. I think too, like another aspect of it is those are the people like they really can't have rising up. You know what I mean? Because they are so resourceful and because they are in a lot of respects more desperate than like those of us, you know, maybe in the global North who don't like this stuff, but we're a little more comfortable. And it's like, yeah, I mean, the, the slavery comparison, Kenny's an intense one, but I think there too, it's like, that's the guy you can't have because he, he might lead the rebellion. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, I think, I think we're getting close. Benefits data trust is something to keep on your, your eyes. Like, I think it actually came out of Philadelphia, but there's a number of states that are involved. And this is all about, um, this is, I think, going to be how, how it goes, is the, the public benefits that are tied to the data collection. And like Chan Zuckerberg is behind that. A lot of the big tech is behind, um, you know, Rockefeller, Ford, Gates. And so that's one that people aren't talking about that more people should have on their radar. If you look, there's one more quote I think I want to get to, and then I'll end. It's maybe the next Yes, it was 77. That's the last one I want to say. It was just this this um, Jerry Brown one that I wanted to mention. Um, so so Miller, who he originally, so he was at Berkeley and then he went into nonprofits and um, he was asking for money for the city. And they're like, oh, you're asking for too much money. You're not proving anything. And you're a poverty pimp. And he's like, oh, you're right. Maybe I am a poverty pimp. And so he resigned. And then so he started this organization as a research project. Right. So they tell you the stories. Right. They're like, oh, the tech guy, he went into nonprofits. And then the, the governor said, oh, you should you should, you know, tr- change your business model to be a data collection model. And so he got startup money from Jerry Brown uh, to do this up, you know, the up, you know, upward program. Um is that what it's called? Upstart hustle score, hustle score program. And so he gave the family laptops with the dating data tracking software to record every action they took to improve their situation. Um, And then quarterly they got cash payments. Um, And then it said that the, the, what the guy did, his staff didn't do anything. They just audited the data because they wanted a window into how they functioned if they were nudged um, to pursue their goals. And so I think like in terms of the politics, it's important to situate that like they tell a story about this guy who just meant well. And then he was you're right, like regular poverty management is bad. So we need data driven poverty management. That's going to be better. And that's this sort of, again, reformist narrative. But it's coming from the structure itself, like the government is saying, by the way, this is the new way we're doing it. We're doing it with laptops and accountability, both for you and the individual families. So that's the conditions. And then the very last slide was just the Orozco again, like the, the mechanical angel, the mechanical angel whispering in the, the ear of the, um, the uh, you know, the missionary priest and Cortez being like, ha, ah, you know, it's Jerry Brown or it's Cortez, you know, <laughs> California mission system, <laughs> like writ large. And then y'all birthed it. And now you're sending it everywhere. So thanks, California. thank you for staying with me for so long but it's important i mean do you see how it i mean is it making sense 
it's a lot of connections. Yes, definitely. I think for for our listeners and viewers that have stayed with us for this long, I think <laughs> whether it be on the podcast or on on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey. I think that they'll uh, find uh, the connections to those things. I think if we can start to incorporate this into the analysis, right? The imperialism and indigenous worldview, like the co-optation of, of women and children into the system through, you know, the monetization, which is something that's, again, it's been in place, the welfare system and, and the behavioral controls for a, many, many, for decades, right? But now the level of, cybernetic control and again the narrative that you're improving yourself right that these women are going to go to a a web developer boot camp and become creators of the metaverse and somehow like that means you've made it right you you've become the, the maker of the digital world while your kid is at a surveillance play table in the corporate franchise daycare like, is that what we want? Like, before we go there, is that actually what serves society best? Is that model? Well, I I think um, it for me it's what it begins to do is expands my um, language or expands my language for just for the kind of trigger words for um, for imperialism. Um, you know, when when they talk about we're bringing democracy, that's a, I, the minute I hear that, I go, okay, so there's something like it's the opposite. And so yeah. now for me, when I hear data-driven, it's the opposite. It, 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 well, it is data-driven. It's not, it's driven, like, I just get this thing of, it, it's driven against the in, intentions and what's good for the, for people. Right. So um, there, there are just, that's kind of the first level of effect that some of the stuff has is just expands my language for, and, and it creates a different framework for how I hear, uh, these things that are sold to us as something good. I guess I'm just very skeptical, you know, I've always been very skeptical in some ways, but just like Lipson, I see more things that are like, that, that I don't trust, that, you know, in the past and, you know, again, people do evolve, right? Because I have evolved politically as well. And, you know, in things that I thought before, you know, as good, I realize now why they didn't completely explain how things work, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's a lot, like you said, but, you know, you have to, you have to see the connections and how things connect, because I think that is another problem of the left, that we see things as single issues, <laughs> you know, and, and don't see how they're all connected, you know, um, and that we're all fighting for the same forces, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to add. Just I think one lingering thought is just another, um, like it's very sobering in terms of, uh, like reminding me of just a commitment to like find ways to put down this technology, uh, like for all of us, because I just think, I mean, look at what it's enabling. It's it's crazy. Like uh, this stuff, some of the on transhuman crypto cloud mines. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes the rhetoric is just, it feels so out there, but I mean, some of the things that you described throughout this, Allison, like it's, I don't know, like it is really evil. <laughs> it's just, it's bad. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, going through some of the source material 
later, maybe with fresher eyes. But yeah. <laughs> you know, the irony about this for me, sorry to interrupt, is no, that no. I, my new job, I am literally, I'm a manager at this restaurant. I literally am hosting events for all these tech companies. You know, I can, I don't care because I'm going to quit that job too. <laughs> you know, but I'm literally facing LinkedIn, Pinterest, you know, Uber, uh, Adobe, you know, all these companies. And, you know, and, and guess what? It's all people of color. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people in high positions are people of color. You know, so like people who claim that this is just a white and black, you know, and like white people, you you don't know what the, you don't understand the world that we're living in. Because there is a lot of, you know, Indian executives, you know, in, in these companies that are, you know, that I see. And, and not just Indian, but Latin American and, you know, people yeah. training in, 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 this, in the, you know, in, in the ways of the empires. They've been at it a long time. And I, I just want to say, too, just for clarification, that, like, there are tremendous needs. Like, I'm not in any way, like, I hope pe- the takeaway is not that, like, we, that people don't need help or that, that that we, we just cut people loose and whatever, because that's not okay either. It's just the solutions that are being offered linked to data analytics and predictive analytics and data surveillance, that's not care. Like that's not community care. That's not charity. That's not how you, you should treat people. Like that's turning people into commodities. So just in case it wasn't clear, like I don't want people to walk away and be like, Allison doesn't care about like pregnant women or little kids. I'm like, no, I just don't want it. I don't want this model. Yeah, I, they're very deceptive. The way I think do. that's what I took away from this is that it's conditional. Everything that is yeah. being offered is, as we have stated at the very beginning, it's conditional. You want this, all right, right? We want this as well. And you know? that the system that created all this need is now using the need to empower the system that's going to create more need. So this and it. It, it, you're just saying, look, you want to keep going down this road. It's it's a death spiral. Like it literally is a race to the bottom. There's no there's no help here. This is it's it's the horoscope. Yeah, it is. Don't let that mechanical angel whisper in your ear. Exactly. You know. So. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Let's, you too, Allison. let's just end with the outro and then. Uh, we'll say our goodbye <clears throat> for people who say they can find us. Well, that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast that channel challenges the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I mind, folks, if you like anything you've heard here, uh, anything of Alison's work, uh, you can find it. Uh, on our blog and please subscribe rate review turn on your turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on spotify itunes podcast and stitcher google play uh, bitchute odyssey youtube rumble um telegram and uh, we'll post all of that in the episode notes where we found this episode uh, and if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover contact us through our blog i'm eduardo Barca with co-host jessica kenny cepeda and Lipson. thank you all very much thank you alison for having us do part two of this We'll see you. All, we'll see you next time on another round of another uh, of these Alice in Wonderland uh, trips. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, thank you. Right. Good night.